Ready? So welcome back to the Diaries of the Wild Ones. Now, once again, a huge thank you to Wild Earth Australia for supporting me and the Adventurous Lifestyle. If you guys need any gear for your next adventure, running, camping, climbing, hiking, you guys name it, these guys have it. Go to wildearth.com.au and put in the 10% discount code MYDIARY. That's right, we've changed the discount code, guys. The new discount code is MYDIARY, all one word, capital letters, wildearth.com.au. Okay, so now you guys know that I live in Crescent Head and we love our little town and my friends and neighbors here have started Crescent Head Brewing Co. Not only do I love supporting small business, I love supporting just good humans. So let's give a big shout out to Crescent Head Brewing Co. And next time you come to our little town, stop into the tavern or the tavern bottle and support the locals. Two beers to choose from, a fruity XBA or a Chris Lager. Surf the point all day. Then have a Crescent Head Brewing Co. beer watching the waves as the sun goes down. That's the point, right? Now remember, when you come to Creso, enjoy this beautiful place and our local beer. But remember to leave no trace and take your garbage with you, please, guys. Much love. So you're about to meet Ben Southall, the madman behind the expedition company Best Life Adventures, which is probably one of the most unique expedition tool companies that I've seen, really just helping people get into some serious stuff. Ben is well known for his Land Rover adventures across the world, and he's also the guy that won the competition Best Job in the World. I went out to his amazing property in Carumban Valley, and we recorded this episode in a cubby house that he had built for his son an incredible little hut called the Young Explorers Club, with old sleepers as cladding on the walls, skulls on the front entrance of animals from all around the world, including a water buffalo skull from Africa. Inside had a huge map on the wall, and it sits on the hill overlooking the valley below. Absolutely incredible cubby house, and this is another great, inspiring chat. Enjoy. Benny Southall. I don't even know where to... I can start this one anywhere. I can literally start this anywhere. Obviously, we're like, we're, we're kind of, we've kind of come together through Wild Earth, but I'd like to think that what really brought us together was Full Drive Expo the other week, because I've known about you and I've known about you for a long time, but actually sitting down, listening to some of your stories, getting a, like firsthand like little glimpses of who you are and what you do, it actually inspired me so much because I started relating what it was. It was like, you've figured out where you've figured out the things that I haven't figured out yet. (laughs) Okay. I've got a few more years on you. Remember this? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You've got a couple more years, but so I think Benny, that's where, that's kind of where I want to start with you is just asking you like, what is your background? Like who, who is Ben Southall? Like where did Ben Southall come from? 
I want to reflect, like you just said there, on that first thing, though, that touch point of me looking into your story. Okay, so the background was I was MC in the Adventure Show. You were one of the people, the talent on stage. And obviously, I did a bit of research into those people and looked at where they were and how they got to that position. Seeing your journey to the Middle Percy Islands, seeing your journey to some of the areas of Iceland, all those areas are places that I've either been or want to go to. So that was the common thread yeah. of passion for you before you got on stage. And that was a bit where I went, wow, I want to find out more about Aaron. Um, the whole idea of Wild Earth as a brand, I think we just love the Wild Earth, the planet itself, and yeah. the wild the places on the planet. So getting away from humans, getting to wilderness, getting to areas of the world where we challenge ourselves and question ourselves as humans. And that shapes us and guides us um, unwittingly into who we become and who we want to become. And I think that's the important part of what I've done as my journey. It's always just been because I want to go and do it. And yeah. come hell or high water... If I've got something in my head, I, I very rarely say no. And that's to my detriment sometimes because people will say, do you want to do, you want to do? And I always go, yes. And it's a great thing to have, but it causes you a shitload of problems down the line. Yeah, because I, I do that. I take on too much sometimes. Yeah. It's funny. When you were just saying that, I was thinking because I was like kind of like actually breaking down myself in my own. Like, it's like, why am I the, the way that I am? Like, what is it? Like, is it a trauma? Is it like, I'm, I was trying to figure it out. And then I, I figured it out. It's because I like, like you're saying, it's about being wild Raw, wild, and free yeah. is what I always come down to. I'm like, okay, well, why do I always want to be free? Like, what is that? And, but to me, it's like to be free is to be alive. Mm-hmm. It's to me, it's like then I, that's where I really feel alive. And, and so to do that, I have to chase the raw and the wildness. And that is those places. I think there's a benefit. So, so one of the things that my mum and dad um, had hell with me when I was growing up because there was a thing back then and it was just called hyperactivity. We now channel it and we call it ADHD or we, we, <laughs> yeah, we put yeah. a label on it. Kids with energy, if you can find yeah. a focus, if you can put blinkers on and make them focus on something, which is bloody hard to do with a seven-year-old, a lot easier to do when you know yourself and you're 27 years old because you know you've got too much energy. You know you get up early and you get to bed late and you can't sleep at night and you're distracted by shiny things. Yeah. And that's always been my problem. That's, they've actually got a saying when I do construction. My boss had a saying. He's like, you're not allowed to flash any shiny things in front of Aaron. <laughs> because he's distracted. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that is, if you can channel that and if you can use that and you can, there's probably parents out there thinking, my kids are the same. But how do I get them on that journey? It didn't happen for me until I was you know, 25, 26, 27 years old that I realized that I can use this to my benefit. And it was about... Always, I mean, my wife probably hates it now because I can't focus on one thing at once and yeah. I'm always doing this and I'm never sitting down. I can't relax. Yeah. But that's a benefit because it means I'm getting the most out of my everyday life, which means I can plan for my everyday week and my everyday month and my everyday year. And the next five years then looks like I've got all these goals that I want to try and do. I know they're going to happen. It's just a case of when you can find mm. the time to physically make them happen. If you just keep saying yes sometime they will crop up and you will do them it might be today it might be tomorrow it might be in a year's time but you almost always tick yeah. those boxes well you're willing to work for it yeah and the harder you work the luckier you get yeah That's and also like i always find too like when you start ticking boxes when you start completing goals you kind of get in that rhythm because it feels good it's a, absolutely so you keep doing it's it. it's the whole fitness bug thing isn't it no yeah. one wants to get on a treadmill when they're 30 kgs overweight and they hate that first session but then the adrenaline gets them through that first week and then it starts to hurt. But if you can get through that hurt barrier, out of the uncomfortable, it becomes more comfortable. Yeah. So what you do day to day becomes the norm. And I think that works for the world of adventure because if someone had said to you, if someone said to you in 20 years' time, I can't believe you summited a 7,500 metre peak. Now you're sitting there going, Christ, I could just about get up a 6,000. But if you went 10 years back, going up a 
hasn't made a peak was a big thing. So you just change your parameters and your brackets of what yeah. you believe is achievable. I think that's just the way that you evolve in the world. There are some young people out there, and I listened to one of your podcasts with a young guy who's rowing across his own boat across the Pacific. Oh, yeah. And I was yeah, sitting there with like, the alarm bells were going off to thinking, oh, my Brett, God. But if you're that brave at that age, there's not much more you can do on top of that. But hats off, best of luck, cross oars, get to the end of that one, and you've set yourself up for a lifetime of it. I know. He's got a... He's got a a world of pain and adventure ahead of him. You know and, what I mean? And he'll become the best engineer mm. because he has to be in yeah. situations like that. That's what I was like saying. He's throwing himself in the deep end. Mm. So he's going to paddle a boat that he built from Peru back to Australia. And he's just literally throwing himself in the deep end. It's like, what else do you have to do other than do it? And I think life throws... The good thing is life throws you situations like that. And you've got to be able to... When you get to that junction, that, that crossroads, and you go, it's the red pill, blue pill thing. Do you take the easy route and say, no, I'm not going to do it? And you fall back into normality and society and you get stuck in the rut of life and you're an, an everybody else mm. or do you turn around and you take a brave moment which sometimes needs your own stupidity or sense or the backing of someone really important in your life to say you can do this yeah and my old man and my mum were the best catalysts for moments like that because i can still remember two moments in my life where i was going to back out and not do it and they said we support you in this so you need to go and do this for you and those were the crucial crossroads where i turned right and went that way nervous scared but came through mm. it and then thought thank god i did thank f i did yeah, it's fun. I, I think I've gotten addicted to taking the hard route. You know what I mean? And I, I, I also found that I have less patience now for people just wanting to take the easy route, mm. which yeah. is like, I, I feel bad. I need to have more patience. But like, you know, you're with someone and they're like, oh, well, this one's easier. And I'm like, no, it's, uh, exactly. So let's do this one. But why, yeah, why wouldn't you? Why <laughs> yeah. wouldn't you do this? Let's just so, try it, see if we can do it. I think it's for me, so this whole, the, the theory of, of, of the adventure started for me. I was very much growing up in the south of England with mum and dad, um, not doing a vast amount of international travel. It was really trips up to Scotland to go camping in the summer. Um, it was school trips to go to France and Germany. That was about the extent of my travels. So not really ever mm. pushing myself and always with a group. Never really individual. I always needed the backing of someone else or the support of someone else or to have camaraderie when doing it. Quite often we speak to and we hear about adventurers who are soloists. They'll go and do things themselves. Yeah. I'm, I would love to go and do that. I just don't know sometimes if I'm brave enough. But my big yeah. moment was when I, I travelled through Southern Africa for a little bit, for six months in South Africa on the back of a work trip, working for a champagne company, down supporting the Around the World Yacht Race in Cape Town. That was my touch point with Africa. And it was a big nervous moment of, am I going to leave the south of England post-university and go and work in South Africa? Is it a good thing to go and do? And again, mum and dad said, just just go do it. It's going to be an amazing experience. And with the money I made basically working on that trip, that paid for six months travel. Were you scared? Like, making that, like, I remember when I was 19, I got a job offer in Fiji. Mm. And I was so excited. And at the end, I didn't do it. And I don't know why, even when I look at it, obviously things worked out that I wasn't, wasn't meant to, but the only reason why I didn't at the time was out of fear. Yeah. Well, South Africa hadn't got good headlines back in 1997. It yeah. was pretty much post-apartheid era. Um, if you didn't walk out of the, the house in Johannesburg and get raped, you get mugged or kidnapped or hijacked. Yeah. So it was a pretty um, daunting thought to go and do something in South Africa um, off my own bat. Um, but I did, and the more time I spent in Cape Town, I had three months there working, the more I got to realise that everything you read in the media is not what you get when you get on the mm. ground. It's and like Mexico. I've spent so much time in Mexico and it's, well, it can get pretty heavy, but generally it's fine. And there's places where in anywhere in the world, you can go to any city in the world and get yourself mugged or attacked if you go at the wrong place in the wrong time. And you don't use 
human empathy and knowledge in your brain. You yeah. build up this, this this understanding of what it's like to go to dangerous places mm. and how to avoid them. You don't put yourself in the you know the, the bear's yeah. pit just for the sake of it. So to go to South Africa and then spend time traveling the coast, very much like you, surfing up the east coast of South Africa, I found an amazing little town called Port Edward and I spent six months there and loved it. It was amazing for any locals. Really good chance to go and do little road trips out into Zululand and down to Coffee Bay and Hole in the Wall and finding amazing places where the weed was growing. We bring back kilos of the stuff and sit oh. on the beach and smoke weed and surf and smoke. Weed. And it was just a brilliant yeah. lifestyle for six months. And then I'd and come And how old home. are you at this stage? Um, I'd left university. So I'd just come out of university um, at 23, 24. Yeah, um, and it was the perfect time to go and find me. Yeah. But all I was doing was really swapping summers because I'd go back to England for the English summer. I'd work between May and September, earn money there for the champagne company, basically doing event marketing and management for all of the sports events in England. So the Wimbledon tennis, the Formula One Silverstone, the rugby, the horse racing, really good money, really good English pounds. Then I'd go to South Africa worked for a tour company over there for their summer. So I basically swapped hemispheres for six years chasing the sun, and it was just the most epic life experience. But every time I went back to Africa, I fell in love more and more with new experiences out of South Africa in Botswana and Namibia and Zambia and Mozambique. And I kept doing these little road trips in hired vehicles to go and explore these countries that I knew on a map, I knew on the, on the globe, but I didn't know what they were like until I got there. And that was the excitement of just testing the water of traveling in Southern Africa. Yeah. And, and as an Englishman, there's always this, there's always a historic journey. Um, we're pretty big explorers, the English, you know, they've always gone places in boats and they've always done these big travels. But the big one for me was to drive from London to Cape Town. And that was this wacky dream of, can I drive the length of Africa in a vehicle or on public transport and go through what could be 15, 18, 20 countries and take on the journey of doing that? And that was my biggest impetus for three to four years worth of planning wow so so i suppose doing all the the trips as it was like around africa built the confidence up for that because you could see it was possible i suppose a absolutely um but i'd always again it was never just me doing it i was always planning these trips with a best mate i need to have someone there to go with me so a very good friend who still is today one of our best mates in the uk a guy called owen we'd gone and done two trips up to see total solar eclipses no reason we weren't particularly star lovers or uh, umbrophiles, which is the official name for an eclipse chaser. But because the eclipses happened in a random part of the world, we said wherever the next one is in the world, we have to be there. So we saw the first one in 1999 in England, in southwest England, in Cornwall. And the experience was so magical, you know, middle of the day, total utter darkness for three minutes. And then the sunrise on one horizon and sunset on the other horizon. Then two minutes later, fully daylight again. It was just the most surreal, belittling experience where you just suddenly thought we are very much a rock circling around another rock in this yeah. massive stratosphere. And that moment, Owen turned to me and said, wherever the next one in the world is, we have to be there. And we went on the NASA website and we looked up the information. And it said, oh, the next one's in Mozambique in, in the year 2000, a year's time. And I said, well, I'm in South Africa working out here. How about you fly out? We hire a vehicle and we drive to the middle of Mozambique and we go and watch this total solar eclipse. So fast forward, he did. We hired the Hilux. We drove up the coast and we'd got into Mozambique just as this massive cyclone had gone through. Loads of floods. Red Cross were in control of loads of the camps. We didn't really have much recognition of this. Drove there in this four-wheel drive. Got there and obviously vehicle was getting bogged and locals were helping us and we were helping out locals. And we sat in a really remote village where people only spoke Portuguese. And we sat with these locals who had no idea there was a solar eclipse they coming. They didn't know it was coming. They didn't know it was coming because obviously there's not much news network out there back in 2001. And we'd taken with us about 30 people pieces of welding glass 
for the locals so they could sit there and view the eclipse by looking up and they're going wow and laughing their heads off and getting scared and we're sitting there filming this is our first ever real african adventure so we did this trip we wrapped it up we went back to south africa and again owen said to me wherever the next one is in the world we have to be there so 12 months later it's in botswana so we did exactly the same hired a four-wheel drive drove to the middle of botswana in a place called kachakel no locals um, that had electricity or water it was just boma huts with cattle around them and protection from the wildlife and we just sat there with the locals and watched these eclipses and it was just so amazing to go and disconnect from everything we knew and the safety and normality of the first world and go and sit with local culturally deep sensitive people and yeah. watch this amazing astronomical event happen how did they um these villages when you come into them how do they how do they view you like are they accepting are they scared are they oh curious like always curious i mean the, the thing is with most villages out there um, unless you're you know following a very much established walking track to collect water there are tracks and paths that go past and people and traffic will go past there it's on the edge of safari land so there's obviously vehicles and they see westerners so they're exposed to it but to go there and sort of explain what's going on and botswana was a lot easier because it was english speaking so yeah. mozambique very much deep portuguese speaking they just come out of the back end of civil war as well so more skeptical about westerners but going into botswana a lot more accepting and the laugh was more natural sitting down with the locals and they almost get into a hysterical state when something as big as a, an eclipse happens above their heads. They're in bewilderment and awe on the verge of hysterical and scared at the same time. Yeah. So to sit there and explain with pictures of what was happening, trying to show them on a... Because we had magazines about the eclipse, so we could show them, you know, planet Earth, moon, sun, and this is exactly what's happening in the sky. So can you rewind maybe 2,000 <laughs> years to the medieval yeah. times? I think when no one had a scientific explanation of what was going on, how bloody scary an eclipse would have been in yeah, medieval times. So, so my mind just went on this silly rant where I pictured you in like rocking up to one of these villages, but in like a magician costume <laughs> and like telling them, yeah, so you're, all right, I'm going to do a trick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can see why sorcerers work back in those days, can't yeah, you? Yeah, if you knew. Whoa. But what an excuse to make yourself adventure for you and your mate to be like, hey, we have to do this. Yeah, and it was great because it was an undefined... It wasn't like we say, okay, next year we're going to Greece for a holiday, and next year we're going to Argentina for a holiday. This was, okay, this is as random as it gets for finding a location on the planet. Where does mm. the moon's shadow cross in front of the... Well, the moon's profile go in front of the sun and cast a shadow on the Earth? Where does that happen? And to look on the NASA website and go, this is where the next one is. The next one happened to be in Antarctica. <gasps> no way! And it was like, we'd just come out of university. We hadn't got a lot of money. It was too far out of our price range. But this was three eclipses in three years. Um, and then we did our next one together. Fast forward to 2012. We went and did one on a boat is on the Barrier Reef in Cairns. Oh, there's, there can be one or two a year. But the totality, which is the part where it goes to total blackness basically nighttime in the middle of day can range from 15 seconds to up to five or six minutes long and the mm. band of where it covers obviously the oath is covered in a lot of water quite often it happens over water so you need to get on a boat to go out and see it but if it happens over a landmass, you'll often very often get umbrophiles which are eclipse chasers and then all get out there and they've all got amazing telescopes and cameras and they'll take photos and they'll get the best one of bailey's beads and totality and we just have bits of welding glass in africa yeah, and just yeah, like yeah. this is amazing yeah so that was our catalyst for african adventure that then sowed the seed for saying okay well i love this part and owen and i said well let's go home and let's think about how we do a drive from london to cape town do you know how lucky you are you know meeting owen someone that adventures like that that wants to share that with you that you can obviously just get along yeah and owen will always be a best mate um the big um fuck up in our lives together was when 
we planned this big trip to drive around Africa. It was going to take a year. We we're going to leave London. We were going to drive down the west coast of Africa to Cape Town, drive up the east coast of Africa to Cairo, back across through Libya and back to England. That was our year on the road. We spent three years marketing it, saving, building the Land Rover that sits in the garage there today to get it ready for this road trip. So it was a massive life investment for both of us. And we put a lot of time into raising the funds because when you're first setting out to do any expedition, no one will support you financially no. because you are a no one. Yeah. And I remember going to documentary companies and saying, we're going to drive around and we're going to do these challenges on the way to raise money. And they said, well, you're not Ewan McGregor or Charlie Borman. No one knows you, so why would they give you money? And that was the biggest wake-up call of, we've got to go and do this ourselves. So we pushed yeah. the deadline from, we set a date in the sand. We said 28th of December, 2007 is the date we're going to set off. And that was set after we sort of failed with a year's worth of lead time into the expedition. We said, we've got to extend it. We've got to save the money ourselves. Because a year on the road, yes, it's cheap, but it's also bloody expensive for vehicular sure. movements and shipping and paperwork and insurances. Um, Breakdowns. And the big thing, oh, it's a Land Rover. It doesn't break down. <laughs> <laughs> like every day. Um, but the big thing, so Owen and I, we sort of planned this for three years. And the closer we got to the time, we got the website going and we'd set ourselves 10 challenges. And the 10 challenges were going to be the way that we raised our money for the charities we were going to do it for. And I love my running. And Owen hates his running but he loves climbing mountains and i don't like heights so we had this perfect challenge to each other that i would get him to run five marathons and he would get me up the five highest mountains in africa and that was going to be our challenge if we completed 10 challenges in the one year the donations money would roll in and we give it to the charities the three african charities that we designated to raise money and make it a worthwhile journey not just a selfish journey yeah. for ourselves um and then with about oh two months to go i'm starting to pick up some vibes owen's maybe not ready to go on this trip um he hasn't quit the business in london that he was running he hadn't sort of got around to it so he's getting about, cold feet he's he, he, he desperately wanted to do it but just owen loves to set himself up with again he can't say no so he's always doing more and more projects, taking more and more on. And this was the one that we put so much into together. But at the 11th hour, he said, right, I can't join you to leave London. The plan was to leave the pub in England and get back to that pub exactly one year later, having driven around Africa. That was the goal. So I set off by myself from the pub, waved goodbye to Owen and Owen said, I'll see you in Marrakesh. I'll see you in Morocco, the first of the countries, and I'll join you for the Marrakesh Marathon. And we started the drive down myself. I had a friend with me to go through France and Spain. I said goodbye to them. And I got to Morocco and I got an email from Owen saying, I'm not going to be able to make it. I haven't finished up the job. I'll have to meet you for your birthday in three months' time in Ghana. <gasps> and I thought, okay, this is a big thing now because I've now got across the Sahara by myself in the Land Rover. Um, mm. I'm probably going to find some people to join me along the way. But he'd missed out on the first of the challenges, the marathon, and I went and climbed Mount Tupacal. Yeah, and not the dream that you kind of like no. had that expectation to. Of sharing you know? every moment, yeah. the challenges, the best bits, the you know the worst bits, all those things where you need that person to bounce ideas off. Yeah. But unbeknown to me, this is growing me as a human more than I'd ever thought possible because I'm having to stand on my own two feet and make decisions better than any education, any university classroom where you're driving through the Sahara and you're on the... I mean, there's a tar road, but it's a, a potted tar road that did, goes through a lot of it. Did that like hurt your feelings or the disappointment? Was there a moment where you actually had to say to yourself, right, I'm here, I'm doing this. Yeah. Just make the most of it. Go for it. Absolutely. And I, again, picked up people along the way. It's amazing you think you're going to be by yourself, but there's always somebody who wants to go on a journey, whether it's a local that just wants to go with the basket of chickens to the market down the road, or whether it's a yeah. backpacker, or whether it's a, it's a Japanese cyclist 
I drove past probably four or five times down the length of Africa. I was going slowly and he was going pretty flat out on the bikes. So I'd stop for maybe two or three weeks in places. And by that stage, this Japanese guy catch me up and I'd see him six weeks later. So there's always somebody on a crazier journey than you, as you well know. Yeah. There's always someone who's doing it slightly differently or slightly more in a more, more extreme way. So to get down to Ghana for my birthday in March, I sort of travelled through West Africa and come through the back end of Senegal and Gambia and into Guinea and Sierra Leone and all these weird areas of the world. Like how are you like travelling? Like what's your day to day? Like are you stopping and seeing sites? Like are you, are you just going to villages? Are you camping? Are you staying in homestays? <sighs> the beauty of the web, even back in 2007, internet forums were my portal of information. To be able to sit and read forums of other people who were doing it or had done it mm. was the best resource tool. But the, be- the beauty of international travel and traveling through a continent like Africa is borders are the best and the worst parts of any journey because that's where you have friction points. That's where currencies change, languages, music, color of skin, religion, food. Everything changes when you cross a border, just like that. It's a line on a map. But to go from one country into another country, literally everything can change. Mm. And or traveling around Australia by vehicle is a wonderful, extreme experience, but there's no borders. Yeah. Apart from state borders. So everything from here to Broome is virtually the same. Take away all of the First Nation people and the wonderful indigenous communities. Virtually everything around the outside is the same from here to there. You yeah. can go and order a beer in exactly the same way you can in Broome as you can here in Brisbane. But to go and do that in Africa, where everything changes, that was the biggest, most challenging, but most human building experience of the lot. Because you'd, I'd have to sit on a border. And if someone said, I haven't got the right paperwork, what, what the hell do I do? How do I just make paperwork happen? The guy with a rubber stamp in Africa rules everything. Because yeah. as soon as he stamps your paper, you can move on and your journey continues. But that might take two hours worth of conversation, finding out about his family or talking about his infantry of men that are sitting behind there or what food they're eating tonight oh, yeah. or should we crack a beer? We had this sailing when we were sailing around Indonesia, you know, Thailand, Malaysia coming. I still remember we sailing to Aceh and we heard that there's an island I think it's Sabang or Sinabang island off the north of Aceh and we heard if you clear in there it's a bit easier because it's more it's an island so it's like a little less traffic and we just heard like it's always who you get or how you get through or, or whatever and I remember we hid we had all carded like beers beers and alcohol and we hit them all in the bilges because we're coming into Archer, you're not allowed any alcohol it's all sharia law but we're like we're westerners and we're aussies they're gonna know it's gonna be suspicious we have no beer so we put half a carton out um like <laughs> yeah away. in it's our dry sto- storage yeah. yeah the dummy ones and have some coke and we had some cokes out or whatever and then we come into customs and so we, we had to go anchor and then go into like this little village, get on a motorbike, go up to like the harbour master and say, hey, like, you know, we're clearing into Indonesia. We're coming coming into your country. And they're like, oh, okay, we'll get our immigration official and customers official. We'll come board the, the yacht. And so we're sitting here going, yeah, okay. They come and they search everything and they come on. Now they're away from the mainland and we've got three of them, two customs officers and an immigration officer. And they sit there and they, now they're finally sitting on the boat. No one's around. They just have a look inside the boat and they go, you guys got beer? And we're like, no, 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 nothing, no, sir, nothing no, sir. no beers. We don't have any beers. They're like, you, you, you have beers? Like beer? We, we want beer. And I was like, you, oh, you want beer? Oh, we've got a couple here. And they're like, yeah, two each. So we give like two beers to the two customs officers and the immigration guy goes, no, no, I want Coca-Cola. I'm like, oh yeah. So we um, give him some Coca-Colas and luckily we spoke a bit of Indonesian. So we sat there and like had a chat with him, paid our fee that we we're supposed to pay. I think it was like 20 bucks or whatever to enter. And the funny thing, we had a like a sister boat that had left around the same time, but was a day behind us from yeah. Malaysia. So we've left after giving him the beer 
and the twenty dollars. And then the next port we we're in, the other boat, which is a catamaran boomerang, met up with us and we go, How'd you go out on the, the border crossing? They're like, Oh, how much do you guys have to pay? They got done for five hundred bucks. <laughs> you know, we're like, What well, we just spoke a bit of Indonesian and gave them some beer. It, I th- but that's like, one of the hardest things though, because the thing that I'd read in blogs and forums leading up to it was that a lot of people were using financial means to try and get themselves through situations. And that was one of the unwritten rules I'd almost made to myself is that no yeah. coin or, or notes would have to exchange hands because then you set the precedence for the next person behind exactly. you to pay double and double. And it becomes more of a fraudulent experience doing that journey. And it's not about paying bribes or fixes. The time, the thing I had on my side is we weren't, I was in a rush. So yeah. time was on my side. And like I say, if you can sit down and you can have that human bond and you yeah. use a big handshake and a big smile the moment you walk into that room, that is the biggest thing to break down. I remember there's a journalist in the UK called Alan Wicker in the 70s. And he was the famous guy that was first traveling in a safari suit. And someone said to him in an interview, why do you never carry a gun where you go? And he said, because no one shoots you when you've got a smile on your face. Yeah. And I thought that phrase was wonderful. Okay, there's going to be exceptions. But if you can mm. go in there and use the power of human spirit... And just getting on with people, you can break down the hardest barriers in the world. And I, there's two or three places, you know, the border of Cameroon and Nigeria, the border of um, coming into Democratic Republic of Congo, two different borders that were, going, were renowned for being really, really hard. But going in there and trying to initially have that human contact that just built you a relationship through looking in the eyes, through shaking hands and spending time to understand their story, that was worth $500 worth of notes in a bundle. That yeah. was so good. But time is a thing. If you're in a rush... You can't get through because you're trying to do it with nerves and you're building up stress and they can see that and they're the boss. Yes. Oh, I remember when we were in um, Bolivia mm. and they didn't, we were crossing from Chile in the San Pedro Desert, the the north of Chile, the driest place on earth. And we're crossing, um, doing a four-wheel drive trip across the south of Sala de Uni and another four-wheel drive had rocked up and everyone gets out and we're going to walk the border the cars do their own separate thing and, and you all walk the border going to this border house and there was an american with us bolivians don't like americans or especially in this part and this yeah. is in the south of bolivia and the north of chile and it cost us i think a, i think it was three dollars fifty for our visa it was it was under five dollars yeah and they charged the american guy <laughs> there was like i think about eight of us all up and then the one American dude, they're like, $150. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> like, yeah. like, he's like, what? They're like, 150 bucks. It's about preconception oh of what's about to arrive, I think, as well. I remember driving yeah. off in that Land Rover to start with and had a Union Jack. Very small sticker on the back window. And I thought straight away, that's something I need to take off because the mm. Empire was great for railroads. It was maybe great for putting voting into some countries. It was pretty shit for everything else, including all the people. So to be part of the British Empire or one of the sort of descendants mm. of the British Empire, I never saw as being a benefit. Um, I mean, some countries you go through sort of Kenyas and places that have had the British there and they've still got some of the infrastructure left that's been a benefit, but not where the slave trade's been and not where yeah. they've been oppressed. So it's just, that's an embarrassment to the British Empire or to the to me as a, as a Brit, now Australian. Um, so to take off that union jack was sort of it's still on there on the back of the vehicle but not to have it front and center in the middle of the windscreen it was just almost setting yourself up for problems before you got there yeah. almost like walking in with a bold and brash american accent yeah can be taken in that negative way yeah so so after getting through the borders like how is your day-to-day life traveling in a land rover like were you camping in it where, where were you getting your food so the Land Rover I'd set up to very much be my home, my office, my bedroom, my kitchen, everything that it needed to be, because I was going to be um, not only taking on these 10 challenges, um, because 
full stop, Owen never turned up and I did the whole journey by myself. But to go and do this, these 10 challenges and to have the vehicle as my safe space, you know, when yeah. problems were happening outside, if I could lock the doors and close the windows, I was in a safe space. That was my vehicle. So that had to be everything. Whereas when you do trips in Australia and you go going camping, you set up a camp and you stay for two or three days at a time. Whereas my road trip, I was pretty much loose on the itinerary, except I had to hit the key dates, which were when the marathons were happening in those countries. So I knew that in January I had the Marrakesh Marathon in Morocco. My next commitment for a marathon was way down in South Africa in July. So the whole of the length of the continent to get all the way down to here. I'm looking at a map on the wall in my cubby house where we're doing this. Yeah. Um, to get all the way down the west coast of Africa to South Africa was a six-month journey. And I had to get to here to the Comrades Marathon, a 90k race in July. So I had a good bit of time to sort of weave my way through this. But I had to definitely get down here. So I was very much rolling. The Land Rover was, um, I'd set up my roof tent in the evening. It'd take 10 minutes to set up. I'd cook my meal on the back door i'd go down to the local markets and get some food i'd come back and eat it and then i'd set up camp go to bed wake up the next day and usually move on the next day so very much transient moving through until i found somewhere i really liked and there's hot spots of um, places on the west coast of africa through ghana where western tourists or backpackers are going a lot more it's still really very few people travel west africa east africa is very common because you've got safari land and you've got egypt and you've got south africa and all these recognized tourist spots but the west coast of africa apart from morocco very very little goes on here and even now in the in the last 10 years you can't take the same routes through west africa that i did because borders have changed politics have changed the taliban are in control there's isis strongholds in mali so you can't do the routes that i did so to find pockets of um friendship from like-minded Westerners and maybe it was two Belgians in a four-wheel drive or maybe it was a Dutch guy with his big truck or someone who'd flown in as a backpacker. When I found those places like in Ghana, I stayed around for three weeks there. I was waiting for Owen to turn up, but I was also enjoying being on the coast there and having downtime. So that was a place to stay and rest. But then I knew once I'd found, once Owen had told me he wasn't coming and I was on my own for the rest of Africa. When he told you, did he say not at all? He told me, he said, um, Ben, this is the email I never wanted to write. And it arrived the day after my birthday so he could let me have a good fun birthday. Oh, shit. Um, and I knew in my heart of hearts it was going to come, but I was also still... Holding on to hope. I'm, I'm the eternal optimist. You know, yeah. it could be... He could have sent me 10 messages saying he's never going to come and then he, I think he's still going to turn up. Were you understanding or was it just heartbreaking? Oh, I, it was really heartbreaking for him more than anything because he'd put in two and a half years worth of savings and he'd done all of the graphic design. He was a great drawing and art so he'd done the website and the marketing and he'd put all this hard work in but then couldn't realize any of the dreams that he'd wanted to do and he's still even today when we talk about it you know owen his biggest regret in life is not having taken that step because for me it's led to so many great opportunities what, what held him back do you know what was the i we've never sat down and gone through that i he tells me it was the business he had a girlfriend at the time he was managing the business with and they sort of never worked out um i think there was a a, a fear of leaving for that long he's a great planner mm. maybe not great executor of things um whereas i'm the opposite way oh. but that's that's kind of brilliant and not to use too much as him as an example but it's just um well, to actually use him as an example <laughs> <laughs> no but it's like that's right there is that it's that po polarity it's like okay you took that step and you've gone into and your life it's like when i interviewed this guy eric that was riding a motorbike from from oregon down to patagonia the guy that mm. i'm gonna take his motorbike yeah and he ended up in chile and when i interviewed him we we're in mexico driving the west coast together and it was like kind of he didn't realize but i did i was like your life's never going to be the same mm. this trip it's like you're literally right now you're open to just the expression of what's happening whatever happens and 
And do you know what happened to it? He went down to Patagonia, was on his way back, COVID hit, ended up in this little village in the south of Chile, found this land that he fell in love with this town, bought land, started an off-grid setup, met a girl. I don't know if he's still with that girl. But anyway, he started a life in this town. Yeah. Right now, he's, he's up fishing up in Alaska, but it literally has changed his life, whether if he ends up living there permanently or not. It's like a whole another chapter. And Mike, when he was talking to me, he's like, yeah, I'm just riding down, you know, my motorbike down. I'm doing it over two and a half years. And then, yeah, I'll go back to Oregon. Who knows? And I'm like, exactly a, who knows? It's a sliding door moment of yeah. opportunity. And if you don't, and this is a big phrase, and a friend of mine always said this, if you don't go, you never know. And yeah. I remember standing on a big point break in South Africa, huge waves, bigger than I'd ever taken on. And I'm, I'm a shit surfer, but he just jumped. And I said, how do I know, Jay? He said, if you don't go, you never know. And I remember jumping off and it was just one of those big moments of deep inhale, take the risk and pay the rewards. Yeah. And those trips are exactly you the same as that. It. Just You have to just go for it. And yeah. it takes a lot to do it. The things that always define it for me, if you tell your mates you're going to do something, you're accountable. If yeah. you put a date on the calendar and you tell everyone about it, you're accountable. So mm. you can stick to that bit because if you don't, you lose out more than anyone else. That's actually, that's the kind of game that I play mm. is like, I just say, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And uh, it's funny. I, I found a um, a life goal list in a diary Ooh. from 10 years ago and I've done them all. How's that? I was going to say, how's that going? It's I've done been. them all. Wow. And wow. I was like, wow. I was like looking, I was like, this is incredible. I'm going to have to write another one. But that's the thing. It's like just... Yeah. I'm just thinking about like going for it. It's like, you'll never know. Mm. You know what I mean? And I always think that it's just like, just go because it's just like, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. At least I went for it and had that experience. I think now that we run a travel company, we have to put calculated risk in things. So we have to plan to the nth degree. And I had a military um, boss in a charity I used to work for. He used to do the typical perfect planning prevents piss poor performance. So yeah. you have the P's all lined up. And that was that was the whole thing about plan it so much that if something goes wrong, you've always got a way to turn left or right and it still works out. It still yeah. succeeds. But doing something like this trip, the Africa drive, there were so many unknowns. You know, the drive into Congo, into Angola, that no one was issued border passes there. No one was given visas. So to, to go down there and take the risk to go and do it, it was either that or ship a vehicle around Southern Africa. And my journey was purely overland. So then if you're doing that, when you go to go into Namibia, the next country, you don't have a... You haven't got the right paperwork to get the exit visa to get out. So they won't let you back into the next country. So all of these link up. So when I'm looking at here at the wall of a, of a map of Africa with all the lines for all of the different borders of the countries. So this area in the in the Horn of Africa was one of the toughest because to get your Democratic Republic of Congo visa, you had to apply in Nigeria. And you had to apply for Cameroon and Congo and Gabon in Nigeria as well. So you had to know roughly what day you'd go in and go out because they were basically five-day transit visas. So the plan... 1,500 kilometres ahead through three countries in the wet season along logging roads, not knowing if you're going to get there in five days or 50 days. Mm. That was one of the biggest logistical nightmares, trying to do that and, and not know. The unknown was the, was the great bit, and but also, also the fear. to know, like, how did you find out that you had to do it in Nigeria? Just randomly? Other, well, again, oh, research travelers. on forums. But then mm. it's got people, the good thing is there's people coming the other way. So you yeah. always hand guidebooks over. So yeah. if I had the next three... Um, barefoot guides or lonely planet guides for the next three countries i'd swap them with the people the ones we've been through i'd swap them for the people going north and we were going south and we'd always have the sort of the lonely planet handheld guide was the bible of information before the web became the yeah. dominant force so to have those and people's personal notes in them 
it was so interesting mm. taking other people's advice because local knowledge is everything as we know and if there's a westerner that's just gone through two weeks before their advice is the most up-to-date you can get mm. so traveling through some of these countries in west africa there's nothing published on the web the lonely planets were probably two or three years old so out of date because borders change i miss those days mm. like when i first backpacked mm. there was no internet there was no wi-fi yeah you know, and maybe there would be an internet cafe somewhere or at a hostel where there was like one computer. Where the I shit didn't even have a Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a Facebook. Like, yeah. you know, I got a Facebook when I was in Spain. Mm. But it was like, it's funny because that happened to us when we were on our way to India. It's like we booked tickets, we're going to India, and then someone just said one day, Oh, have you applied for your visa? It takes two weeks to get. I was oh. like, And we're leaving in like four days. <laughs> Or five days or something. I was like, what? What visa? So we had to get on the first flights to Malaysia to Kuala Lumpur and sit by the embassy. And like do just, it there in person. Yeah. And, mm. and, and it just got there in time. But okay. So driving all these countries, right? Like you, you've just pretty much said like 10 or even up to like 12 countries that you've taken a Land Rover uh, through and you're just camping. You're having border crossing, you know, um, all, all that kind of like standard kind of travel headaches or yeah. like hard hardships but what about like your own safety being like a white dude sticking out like a sore thumb in a nice like full drive all done up like, was it dangerous what about like you know you're saying like isis have a stronghold in mali now you know like even south america like you're coming through border crossings mexico you're rocking up people have got machine guns everywhere it's quite heavy you know they search your car they ask for money they find weed maybe mm-hmm like what was oh um so there were areas where i knew we were gonna get problems i knew from just uh, this is so west africa sahara pre-isis days the paris dakar rally rally was still running so westerners were in those areas during certain times of the year so it was easy enough and, and the locals were used to it um I, do, I still remember going between um senegal and gambia and the border there really quite heavily armed border for some reason we'd driven through the capital of um, gambia we'd seen the president go past with a high with a high luck support with the gun turrets on the roof it was, it was scary stuff you're like wow this is deepest mm. darkest africa now really coming you know to to the front of a western eyes um and i'd seen this sort of stuff for the first time going from gambia into senegal i still remember luke my friend was sitting next to me in the in the passenger seat and uh the guy the security guard came up to this ak-47 across and he thrust out a piece of paper and his pen and he said i want your address and he's got the strongest face on. And he's got the gun on his shoulder. And Luke's looking at me. And I write down the address. And I'm thinking it's for some paperwork. And he's, he had very broken English. But he turned around and said, I think I love you. And there's this huge guy with this camo gear on with an AK-47 who's thrust, who's trying to get my details off me. And I can hear Luke chuckling under his breath in the distance. So I'm thinking, what do I do here? Is this guy meaning I like you? And he was basically trying to say he wanted to send me a postcard. He wanted to be a pen pal. And that was what he was trying to say. But he said, I think I love you. And they were the words that still, how can a guy get it so wrong, but so right for the conversation oh afterwards? God. Luke and I were just wetting ourselves with laughter after this one. So those ones were, it was interesting, but fun at the time. But then yeah. Nigeria was renowned for being very problematic for Westerners um, through certainly the area of the Delta, where the oil companies are really screwed up things down there. Um, but coming into Nigeria from Cameroon, so there's a really, really interesting border when you go out of Nigeria into Cameroon. Um, but as you come into Nigeria, within the first kilometer of coming in from Benin, there were seven different checkpoints. So they will try, those authorities were trying to get anything out of us that they could. So we had custom stops, police stops, army stops, veterinary stops, every single stop, just to try and get something out of a vehicle that was coming across. And every time are they searching the car? No, luckily not. I mean, they would look look over it, but not deeply into it. The deepest searches we've ever had are coming into China and Uzbekistan, but that's a whole different journey. But this one, going into Nigeria, 
some of them said, why do you deserve to have malaria protection? And I don't give me all your malaria protection. So this is, you know, I'm just having to give away half of the tablet so that we've still got some to cover ourselves. So it was just about the fact, the difference between, I suppose, in their eyes, rich and poor. And why do yeah. you need to have what I have? But as soon as again, if you had time to sit down and explain, this is my house. You have a house you go back to. This is my house on four wheels. I just happen to move around the world in it. Um, but to get through Nigeria, this this is past. Once you got past the border guards, the roads are pretty long and straight. But we'd heard this rumor about this group called the Sticker Boys. And the Sticker Boys are like a group of young guys in gangs that used to hold up vehicles. And they were renowned. So there were areas that we were told you do not drive through because the Sticker Boys will be around. And in those areas, they're probably definitely there. But other areas, you might find them. I remember driving down a fairly rural road fairly main road but very rural and suddenly i was in on the front vehicle of two vehicles because we'd had a south african couple that joined us as well in their uh, nissan patrol and suddenly out of the hedge jumped this group of seven guys and the sticker boys are called sticker boys because you know the police stingers the, the spiked things they throw out in the road yeah. to stop cars they had homemade ones of those so basically they had a scaffolding plank with nails nailed up through it and they chuck that on the road in front of you to pop your tires to then hijack you that was the theory so i remember seeing this group come out of the road run out of the last minute and i remember somehow just driving at them so they'd thrown the thing on the road and i drove down the verge at them oh my there's God. seven or eight guys and all of a sudden they, they haven't popped the tires but they surrounded the vehicle so i've got the window and i've done it up and i'm talking through a tiny little gap at the so top of the window still stopped the car so they they, still they, stopped they've the car. jumped out that's oh my god so, so like, then it was a case of that they haven't punctured the vehicle so we're in a pretty good position because we can still drive off and if you've got seven people around a car that's pretty good going you just put your foot down and go but they were talking through the window one had a knife and was waving the knife and i thought well this is you know we're in trouble now we're in serious trouble but again something just happens at the moment there's no hero status it's just what you your body and your mind instantly tells you you got to do and it was just a case of you're on the grass verge your tires are all in one piece put your foot down and get out of here and they were in such shock that they hadn't managed to get the vehicle they all jumped back and we drove off and the nissan patrol behind us drove off and we got through but it's at moments like that for the next 10 minutes you try and put your foot in the clutch and your entire leg and your whole body is shaking because you've got that close to something happening it's like when you go very close to having an accident in the car and you get that momentary thing afterwards where the whole body is almost convulsing in fear. Mm. That was one of those moments of, okay, it's really rough. It's really raw out here. If that went 50% the other way, we'd probably have been hijacked, maybe have no vehicles. God knows what they'd have done to us. Yeah, my God. And that's so lucky. Imagine if you didn't turn yeah. or you hadn't had that conversation to know to look out for those guys. Oh, absolutely. So it was like you're, you knew to react as soon as you saw these people jump out. It was just... It was just somehow that that sort of subconsciousness of you've all you're always on edge. You're, there's always something that could go wrong. Whether it's a vehicle that's pulled over at the edge of the road and someone asking for help, and they're not actually asking for help, they're asking for you mm. to stop the hijack. There's always that subliminal thing in your head of what could go wrong here. So yeah. I suppose you're always micro-processing every situation, but not enough to affect your normal psyche. Yeah. So you're always enjoying yourself, but you've always got something on the back burner just in case. Yeah. Like, were you ever scared? Yeah. I think so. Um, I think a couple of times, definitely on that trip. Um, one moment in Ethiopia, similar sort of thing, just on a very, very busy highway going into Addis Ababa. I was in the car with a Dutch guy called Case and another guy called Abby, who was our sort of Ethiopian helper. Case had got a big man truck. His clutch had gone. We were driving into Addis Ababa to go and get a new clutch. And we were in two lanes of traffic, very, very nose to tail, bumper to bumper traffic on the way into Addis Ababa. And... We were basically doing about three, four, five kilometers an hour. And I remember the minibus in front of me stopping and some people getting out. And this old lady got out and she sort of looked up and she sort of held my eye contact. 
and she could see white man. And I could see the dollar signs in her eyes. Yeah, and she How walked, is it how you see that? They get excited. Just something. I knew yeah. there was something going to happen. And she basically walked into the Land Rover, threw up her shopping bags in the air and screamed blue murder like I'd struck her at 60 kilometers an hour. And there's people at the markets. And all of a sudden, all of the people that heard her screaming thought I'd hit her. So and, and in Ethiopia, the rule was always I'd read, you do not stop in the village. If you hit someone, you drive to the next town and you report it to the police because mob and gang culture will take over where they will be the kangaroo court in that moment. You'll be dragged from the vehicle and you're going to be the one at fault. So I remember thinking, OK, this is this is not a situation I want to be. And Abby, the Ethiopian guy in the back, said, you've got to drive, Ben. But by that stage, there's 30 or 40 people rocking the Land Rover, shaking it physically, and it's going from side to side. And I'm thinking, we're, again, we're in serious trouble here. And he said, drive, put it in first gear and drive. So we drove up the grass central reservation. I've got people hanging but off the back of the car. Out the road. Well, the, the people had come off the front, but there were still people hanging on the side on the guardrails. And I was driving up the central reservation. He said, Abby said, go over there, go over there. And luckily, 50 metres up the road, there were the gates, armed gates of a police station. And he said, drive in there, drive in there. And as we get to the gates, the police could see us coming. They open the gates up. They, sh- they fire their rifles in the <gasps> air. All of a sudden, the crowd jump off the vehicle. But then we spent about six hours in the police compound because they brought the lady up who claimed that we'd hit her. We then had to pay for her shopping. We then had to pay for her to go to hospital to get her x-rays done to prove we'd done nothing wrong. She then eventually six hours later comes back with her family. And we then end up saying, look, okay, we might, we'll pay for your shopping, no problem at all. But there's nothing, clearly there's nothing wrong with you. And by this stage, the were crowd you, Were you gone. trying to say like, hey, she jumped in front yeah, of us? Yeah, but she was again, to... broken language. You yeah. know, talking to Ethiopian police who had very good understanding of their own language. But also the Ethiopian calendar and time is totally different to the Western calendar. So trying to tell them the date and the time this happened, it made no sense to them. So just breaking down the stuff you take for granted to file a police report was the hardest thing to do. So six hours later, finally, the crowd have gone. The family arrived back from the hospital. They've got the x-rays. There's nothing wrong. They sort of just accepted it. We gave them double the price of all the lost shopping for the time and everything. And on we went. But it was one of those moments where you realise if we hadn't had Abby in the back saying you need to drive, we'd have been probably ripped out of the vehicle. So, yeah, big moments. These are the moments that I don't miss about traveling like i remember in thailand uh we hired this car i can't remember it was on where the full moon is copenhagen Copenhagen, yeah 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 yeah, we we hired this uh car there and anyway anyway we we bought it back about 15 minutes to the time and like we pulled up out the front parked it went inside and the guy is just like walking around like not giving us any attention he's like yeah i'll be with you in a sec whatever but he is one of these guys just bad energy and then he walks out gets in the car, drives it backwards and forwards for about five minutes, doing nothing, just going forwards and backwards, <sighs> reparking, then walks in, walks back inside and and taps on the clock on the wall and he's like, you're late. <laughs> and we're like, We've been, what are you talking about? Been here 20 minutes. And he pulls out his rule book and he's like a fine print, like if you're late, like every like 10 minutes or something is another day yeah. kind of thing. So he's trying to get like another 60 bucks out of us. And we're like, He's a money-making machine. Yeah. I'm like, you've, but he's got our passports because to hire the car, we had to give him a passport. And I was like, I'm not giving you any extra cash. Any, any, you any caused money. this problem. Like, yeah. yeah, I was like, we're here on time. It's like five minutes over right now because you've been like, so we've been here for 20 minutes. Isn't know? that a rule that you learn though about yeah. the passport? And yeah, never you never hand it over. It's just one of you those things that becomes common knowledge afterwards. But at the time, yeah. you're just like, oh yeah, take it. Full trust. Yeah. And then as soon as it goes out of your sight, that's everything. You're yeah. in trouble if you haven't got that. Well, man, this guy had this metal um, ruler. I think it was a ruler. And anyway, I tried to, I said to him, like, I'm going to the tourist police. So I tried to grab my passport and he hit me with the ruler. 
<laughs> back to old school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like he, started, he went, it was going slack. I remember my girl, because I started getting really angry. And then my girlfriend at the time was like, Aaron, like we've got to just, you know. Corporal punishment We've got to pay the money. And I was so angry. I remember I was like saying, I'm going to sneak back tonight and let all these ties down. And like, just, <laughs> just because it was so unfair, you know, just people like just really trying to scam you. It was, I think that was one of the, like I said, the lesson of the road was that you've got, in a vehicle when you're driving you've got two really important things you've got your passport and you've got the car's passport which is the carnet de passage mm. which is a yellow document A4 size and it's like a temporary import document so every time you come to a country you get it stamped on the way in and you get it stamped on the way out and when you get back so you, you put down a big bond against the value of your vehicle before you leave on your trip and you only get that money back once you've completed the trip and you come back into the country of origin so once I brought the car back all the way back to England I'd get that final stamp on the paperwork and I'd get the £5,000 released for having a temporary import document so exactly the same as the passport, almost more valuable. Because if you if you can't get your vehicle out of the country, you haven't got the paperwork and you can't get your money back at the end of it. So I've got three safes in that Land Rover, two in the footwells and one hidden right at the back that no one has ever found. And that's where all those documents stayed because if push came to shove and we got hijacked, they can take the vehicle, they can do whatever they want. I've got my documents hidden in that vehicle that I know they would never find and they were locked under you know, three keys. Would you freak out... Like, let's say you went for a surf or a swim and your car's there. Because I had a dream the other night that my troopy got stolen. Oh, right. And it completely freaked me out where the last few days I've been locking it because I don't, mm. I don't yeah, normally do lock it. my car. <laughs> yeah. You know? And I'm like, because if it got stolen, it's my whole life. Mm. Yeah, the back and, of the and, thing. and that was uh, that was really the, the thought in my head the whole way. This is everything. This is, you know, the office that I work in that I update everything on the website. Upstairs is my bedroom. Off the side of it is my kitchen. This is my life and everything. Um, so just the time you go away, for, even to go for some of the treks up the mountains, to go away for one or two weeks and go and do some decent treks during that Africa trip, that was the hardest thing to leave the vehicle and knowing that I needed to secure it. So there's, I've built in lots, or Dad and I have built in lots of different things like immobilizer keys and um, electric reset points. So if someone went there with a the key, they'd never be able to start it straight up. There's three or four things that I can take off that to immobilize it yeah. that aren't fancy electronics that screw up in the wet. They're just really basic switches, locks and keys that they need to be using the right combination for that thing to start up and run. That is brilliant. And it's a heavy thing to push. It's three and a bit tons. So Yeah, yeah, you just can't push it. No, no. What about, were you sleeping on the roof because of uh, lions? Oh, I... Having done those trips in Africa, um, in the lead up to Afrotrex, as I called it, the big Africa journey, um, I'd lived in Hiluxes and the roof tents on top of them. It just, there's something beautiful about sleeping off the ground. Um, If you've got wildlife walking around in camp, and we'd done a few of the safari parks with lions and hyenas, and we'd baited the area around our camp with chicken carcasses to bring them in because we wanted to see them at night out of the tent. It was stupid, but great at the time when you're 25 years old. We had the first one, some of the first Sony cameras with infrared, and I still remember now sitting in that roof tent, seeing hyenas come into camp, one brushing up against the ladder underneath the Land Rover that we're sleeping on the tent of. Are you um, sleeping with a gun just in case no, you need to fire it? No. So you're just baiting them in. And then what if... Like, we, we're just because we, it was fun at the time. We were young. We were filming them. I still can remember now two sounds I could hear then, or three sounds. One was the sound of the hyena scratching the, the, the ladder. The other was my heart literally doing that and the other it was eight high eight videotape so it was the whir of the videotaping and they were the three sounds that stood out like deafening whilst this hyena was a meter below us picking up the chicken carcass at the bottom of the tent ladder stupid but christ it was exciting at the time oh my god imagine me ate and then just so that was our tent that was our accommodation was the roof tent on top of the land rover and you know there were days where it was too cold when we're high in the in the mountains and it was sort of minus 10 outside but days as well in the middle of mali in bamako in the capital of mali 
48, 50 degrees during the daytime and 40, 35, 40 degrees at night. Really hard to sleep in a roof tent with no fan. And that was when it was, you know, me and a mate Owen is supposed to be. So it was a boy's tent, so sweat really didn't matter. But then when I went and did the journey from Singapore to London in the Land Rover, I changed it up a bit. So I had a fan in there. I had a girl, my wife now, Sophie at the time. So it, was, it needed to be a little bit more um, applicable to a relationship, should we say. So it was better conditions for both of us. Yeah. Well, I've got the I've got two fans in the Troopy. Mm. Quiet car for ammo fan, fans. They're just, just a light buzz and they yeah. use hardly any. But as soon as you go up North Queensland, yeah. you've got to. Yeah. It's yeah, just I, too absolutely. hot. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I fitted. So when we did Singapore to London, um, we drove through Malaysia and I was driving through Bangkok in the Land Rover and through Kuala Lumpur. Hot humid slow moving traffic sweaty with just a fan no air conditioning so we get to malaysia and there's an area there called the cameron highlands and there's still two thousand land rovers that they use for agricultural purposes that have no road tax to pay so there's land rovers thousands of defenders there and there's a place there where i got air conditioning fitted in the land Rover, and it cost me like 500 australian dollars best thing i have ever done a relationship and a marriage saver without a doubt wow so wait wait so we'll, we'll get back to the african tri- trip mm. in a second but this vehicle that you built with Owen, you have taken all around the world on several trips. My question for that is because I've I've seen it. There's a Land Cruiser that you, that I used to follow, a Troopy um, that I used to follow on social media, mm. who was doing this. It's like they, they just had such a good setup. It's just like how do you organise your vehicle? Like from Australia, obviously you've got to go on a barge. Yeah, I'm just thinking the logistics and price to do it is it worth it um it's shipping in the last three or four years has become stupid I've, i was inquiring for someone who's taking um a, a vespa um back to holland from singapore about two weeks ago i was chatting to him and the cost of shipping has escalated so much but the beautiful thing about a land rover um with a roof tent is you can fit it into a 20-foot container and it's not expensive to throw a container onto a vessel. So to get it from here to Singapore is about four thousand Australian dollars. You then pay a fair bit in your port charges, so probably another two thousand dollars on top of that. But if you've paid six thousand for that, that's your transport. That's your accommodation. That's everything you need. Apart from countries like going through India where it's very hard to camp, that would be my safe space. So we could take so much more stuff. If we were trying to change vehicle to vehicle, country to country, you're basically stuck with a backpack. And when you're running a website and when you're doing, uh, you know, you're living with your partner and you want to make it a comfortable, enjoyable experience, it's so nice to have your stuff with you. So a refrigerator with cold water in it, you know, one of the best things to have. Um, Your own sleeping gear, um, just the ability to put out chairs and mats and that sort of stuff. It's so nice to have those on board. It's a bit of an extra luxury. Um, But to be able to put things in a container and send them around the world. I've done it now. We did it from... um, so we did the first one was UK to Australia and then Australia to Singapore. And then we drove back to the UK from Singapore to ship it all the way back to Australia. So it's done three big sea crossings. But the continent that I'm still waiting to get to, the Land Rover's never touched the American soil. So it's done 73 countries now, like Colonel Mustard, which is the Land wow. Rover. And I'd really want to get to South America. I've not yet gone and done anything here. Um, but I would love to get it over there, maybe with mm. my little boy Atlas to go and do a journey around that part of the world. Because that's where I first saw people doing stuff like this was in South South America. Yeah. But I just want to touch back. How come India is no good to camp? Oh, because <laughs> you get to bed at night thinking there's no one around you and you wake up at 4.30 in the morning, there's 50 people standing within a metre of your vehicle all shaking their heads thinking you're the local attraction. And it's very, there's very little personal space. So... Yeah. 
we drove through parts of uh, Myanmar or Burma um, coming through Thailand to get into the top end of India. And we went through Burma because you need a guide to go through Myanmar. Um, and to do that, you need to basically split the cost with other travellers. So we found on a forum again some motorcyclists who were doing the journey. And the difference for us to them was as soon as we got into India, there's no personal space on a motorbike. So when you arrive as a Westerner with a bike they've never seen before, suddenly, and I love the Indian community, there are 10, 20, 30, 50 people all around you within seconds. And it's hot and it's dusty and you've had a long day. And all you want is a bit of personal space. So to be able to have a Land Rover where you can literally close the door, close the window and just sit there and breathe, that is worth its weight in gold. Yeah. might not be quite as adventurous to be doing it on a motorbike, but it just gives you that safety space. Wow. Because now I'm just thinking, like, can my troopy do this? Of course you can do it. Easy. So, okay, 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 okay. When, what about, okay, because... this trip now we've jumped from Africa now. Now Sorry. we're around China. No, it's okay. Yeah. We're going to through Thailand. So I've travelled Thailand and India, and it's like they're busy. Mm. So if you're camping, are you avoiding yeah. towns and like trying to go out of towns? And sometimes you just villages just go forever. Thailand's a lot easier um, to travel through. It's actually become more costly than most of the west, uh, the Southeast Asian countries recently. If you take a private vehicle into Thailand. For the last two or three years, they're charging you $500 a time. It's, it's an expensive asset. And you've got to have a guide to go with you. And Thailand, for me, is the most accessible of all the Southeast Asian countries for Westerners. Easiest to travel to. But mm. for some reason, there's this new embargo about having a guide in there. So it's become extremely restrictive. Um, but to go out through, um, to go up through the, the peninsula of um, Singapore into Malaysia into Thailand... I was just trying to find rural fishing villages. There's nothing better than waking up on a beach. Yeah. I love that feel of putting up the roof tent you know, as the sun goes down and waking up for sunrise. However, all of this bay around here is really polluted. So yeah, usually the beach would have loads of bottles on it and it's not quite as beautiful as you imagine. Um, but to go and see real rural cultural parts of the country, to see how it operates, to see what makes it tick, Bangkok's great. It's lovely, but it's just it's a city. It's another big chaotic mm. mad city. So to go and find as many rural parts as possible, which are usually um, beaches or mountains. And if yeah. you can get either of those two, you get away from people, as long as it's not tourist areas, and you can go and find real sort of hill tribes or fishing villages, and you go and meet the locals. And more often than not, this is, the, this is what I learned in Africa, is that if you pull up into a village where you're a bit of an attraction, you can go and have fun. You can go and sit with a family and have dinner with them, or they'll say, oh, come and camp on the football pitch. And then you have really good, unique, unplanned experiences. Um, India is just that little bit different. The police will very often move you on in India. If you're camping there in something as obvious as a bright yellow land drive with a roof tent up, you're more of a distraction than an attraction. And the locals mm. might get a little bit um, overzealous um, and get a little bit close. And obviously there's things that break off vehicles. So you can't leave the vehicle then. You can't just yeah. leave it set up. So we often, when we travel through India, I was very often just using one of the apps and booking ahead for a really low-grade hotel. And then when I get to the hotel, the safe compound, park the car in the car park, don't use the room, but use the roof tent. So it's just for a bit of safety and security more than anything. Yeah, wow. Um, this was a interesting one. So did, my, my Singapore, go on. No, no, no. I did it ever get broken into? No. So the only thing I've had stolen off the vehicle was in Uzbekistan, and that was a row of... LED strip lights that go along the side of the vehicle that I used at night to be when we were out camping. That was the only thing. That was the, wow. seriously the only thing that's been taken off it. So there's double locks on every door. There's anti-smash film on every window. There are grates on the back windows. There are mm. locks on the water tanks. There's locks on the pet. It is 
as I call it Africanized because there you've got to make sure if someone wants water is a big commodity over there. So if you've got water in your water tanks, people will do that rather than walk 10 kilometers to get the water. So there's got to be locks on there to preserve your own supplies as much as anything. Um, So the security of the vehicle and the build of the vehicle was really critical. It makes it heavier, but it means that ultimately it's never had the search, the safe searched by custom because they don't know they're there. Even if they x-ray the vehicle in China, they never found the safes, which was a big win for me. Um, And then safety, personal safety of all your stuff. So immobilizers, locking devices, double locks on all the doors and anti-smash films. So they're the things that I've probably over-engineered it, but it's yeah, served its purpose. Wow. I'm getting so inspired here. <laughs> okay, okay. So you're, you're, you said this was interesting. You're pointing to India on the map. Yeah, so so let's let's assume Africa's done. Africa was a year on the road. It was sixty five thousand kilometers. It was thirty two countries. It was a year on the road. I did ten challenges bar one which is the Ruwenzori Mountains because there was fighting between Uganda and Congo. So I couldn't get that challenge. So I had to find another mountain to go and do. Um, So let's just say that one's done. That's a big tick. That's 2008 out of the way. Got back to the pub in England one week late because I got through, uh, when I went through Libya, Gaddafi was still in power. So this was a 2,000 kilometre drive on the most perfect highway in Libya. There's masses of oil money there. So perfect highway. Diesel cost one cent per litre. So I drove what? the whole width of Libya for $2. 2,200 kilometers cost me $2 in a Land Rover because fuel is almost given away to the population. But I get to Tunisia and we miss the boat that goes once a week across to Italy. So we got back to the pub in England on New Year's Eve, not Christmas Eve in 2008. So that was my big year. Was it Owen there to meet you? Owen was there at the pub to meet me and he gave me a big hug and I just looked him in the eye and I knew the look he was giving me. And I, you know, I said, I'll show you the photos at some stage, but you don't need that right now. And there was my boy. There was my best mate and still my best mate now, Owen. Oh, we um, And I, 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 I really wish he'd been there. And we've done other things since then. But at the same time, in, in some way, it was meant to be. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like for yeah. you, like to to grow into yourself, like to, what a, like a raw, wild, scary, adventurous, like and just to, all those countries, all those cultures. And so many different shoes you've got to step into because uh, I was trying to train and run for marathons. So I was... The friends I was meeting along the way, they'd drive the Land Rover at one in first or second gear as I was running alongside them. So I was doing sort of training runs through Western Africa in sort of 38, 40 degrees, trying to keep fit. So you're doing that, you're doing logistics, you're keeping fit, you're trying to update the website and then get the vehicle home safely. That was, yeah. my, that was my boy. I bought him in 2004 and I've had it every day since. And I love my old Land Rover, weirdly. Um, but that was the thing, to get that home was like the biggest reward. And then it's those things that you do when you achieve them you realize the opportunities that then lie in front of that so i got back after four years of planning this not knowing what the f i was going to do next what do i do i've just all my life's been put into that there's the there's always that vacuum after yeah, any that transition it's that always, blue window yeah of what do you do next um and it like always it's been, nice to be home and after a week you're sitting there and it's like you get real itchy oh total absolute like, loss yeah in a way um and i just always got that vacuum of negativity after a big trip well, I mean, the good thing is in the last two weeks or two months of a trip, you're always thinking what's next. So you've always got something in the on the back yeah. burner. You're always thinking about the other thing, but there's that natural drop off. So to get back to England, this is when this big opportunity. So in 2009, I won a competition called the best job in the world. And that was to be a caretaker of the islands of the Great Barrier Reef. It was a huge campaign, a global campaign that Tourism Queensland ran. And 35,000 people applied for the job. And I put a one minute video in, an application video, just like all the 35,000 other people. And five months later, I won the best job in the you, world. You put it in from England as well. I put it in seven days after getting back from Africa. I was just like, oh, give it a go. Why not? So what did you, what was different about your one minute video to the... 
oh, thousands of other people. Unknowingly, in the year in Africa, because I'd been running a website all about the adventure, I'd been building up this digital resume of, there was no influencers then, there was no, there was Twitter, there was very early Facebook, but I'd just been running a website because I wanted other people to get inspired by my journey, like I'd been inspired by other people's websites, to go, is it possible? And they read the website and they go, it is, this is how Ben did this. So I'd been building up this library of images about, you know, learning to dive in Lake Malawi um, and then um, riding ostriches in South Africa and, and running through the Sahara and climbing all these mountains. So I'd been putting together this digital resume, which is not like getting a university degree where you've got to have it in the right font and it looks good on your CV. This was just me living a life that I really enjoyed living and then someone going, Tourism Queensland going, this is the right sort of character that we want who needs to basically write a blog for six months doing crazy shit. And I'd just done that for a year. So it was a perfect resume to go and apply for the job of the best job. So how world. old were you? 34. So 34, you won. And then that brought me to Australia and that was 12 years ago. And that was six months of travelling all of the islands of Great Barrier Reef, diving and snorkelling, 60 70 different islands and reef locations and running a website called the best job in the world all about what it's like to go and backpack on south mole island or live in a six-star resort on qualia and do everything that the tourists could do in australia and that they was paid you dollars for six months work what? <laughs> so it was pretty epic and that was my touch point that was how i got to australia so that opportunity of doing africa and driving around africa opened doorways like nothing else it was perfectly timed wow so, okay, 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 okay. So then where did the idea come from after you've done the best job in Australia to do this Asian trip in the... So that was, the job was 2009. Obviously, there's a big jump because in 2015, we did the journey from Singapore to London. The Land Rover has been built since 1955. In 1955, two university teams, one from Oxford and one from Cambridge, drove Land Rovers for the first time to Singapore. It's called First Overland. It was a book I'd read in about 2004, the foreword was by David Attenborough, and it was just an amazing journey of guys saying, fuck it, we'll do it. Let's just do it. Let's be the first people to ever drive overland there. And I read this book and thought, there was, again, no internet back then, but so inspiring to see how they did it. You know, driving through what was Persia in those days. And the first time that Burma had been opened up since the Second World War. So old um, war routes through the north end of Burma, they took those roads for the first time. And they were building bridges and they were digging out inclines to get the vehicles through. And it was a real boy's own adventure. Yeah. So that was 1955. 2015 was the last year that Land Rover were producing the as-is, the old version of the Land Rover Defender. So I'd sort of gone through quite a bit of publicity and media stuff in Australia. And I said to Land Rover, look, it's 2015, it's the last year of it. Why don't we replicate that first overland journey and do last overland? So we retrace their steps from Singapore to London. <gasps> and on the way, we try and find all the Land Rovers and tell the stories about the people that are still running them. So that was the catalyst, the idea behind it. Um, and so my wife had wanted to go back to England for Christmas. And I had said to her, well, why don't we, instead of flying back, why don't we take a year and drive back? <laughs> so... It was... And wait, did, did Land, Rover, Land Rover jump on this idea? So we provided them with lots of content, lots of storytelling. Again, by this stage, um, social media has really grown. It's matured. You've got weird people that pose with products on the beaches and Gold Coast being influencers. Or you've got people like you and me, hopefully, telling real stories about how life is, yeah. how gritty and good it can be. Um, so really, we fed them content of the stories of the people we'd met along this journey um, who still had Land Rovers. So we met up with the Land Rover Club in um, Thailand, in Malaysia, in Singapore. They gave us a big send-off. We met up with them in India, in Turkey, um, in the top end of Uzbekistan. So it was really a nice chance to go and use some of these club contacts that I'd met just over the internet on the journey to set off on February the 10th from Singapore and arrive back in England driving 
48,000 kilometers this time in 32 countries to go all the way back from Singapore, all the way back through Europe, little dip down into Africa, and then back to the United Kingdom in time for Christmas. What, just because you wanted to check Morocco out? Oh, so the Islamic countries of the world are the single most welcoming, warm, friendly, lovely people you will ever meet. So as mm. soon as we left the Muslim world and we got into normal Europe, the Europeans, great people, great cities, they have their blinkers on, they want to earn their money, they don't want to talk, they don't want to ask questions, they don't invite you in for tea. So it's very alienating, it's very polarising of, well, I don't want to be here, I, don't, I want to go to people that I meet and I love. Yeah. And Morocco, we stood on, stood on the rock in Gibraltar, and I said to Soph, well, look, we can either spend three weeks camping in the middle of winter in France in a roof tent, which is pretty uncomfortable, or we get the boat for an hour and a half across to Morocco, and we spend three weeks in an Islamic country, and we explore the Sahara, which she'd never been to, and we go and redo Morocco best decision ever questions and friendly faces and cups of green tea and up in the mountains it was just a perfect reset after having done quite clinical and sterile europe yeah it's funny like when i was first backpacking everyone's like why don't you go to europe and i i went to spain and i i I did like it but it, it had a lot of good history and the culture was nice but it was just something different about backpacking through south america or backpacking through asia mm. where you're going to different villages it's, it's so different yeah and and, and, and engaging I mean? and embracing and engaging. And human the, the power of human conversation and psyche is there it's you can just have the chats with people and they'll ask you questions and they want to know yeah and i love that engagement side of things and that was just missing yeah. through europe through that stage it's funny how you said like india is definitely a bit full-on like that but like when i was in um there's a mosquito flying around my head. There it is. Got him. Shot. I oh, know he's good. But um, I was like, when I was in South America last, like when I was in Chile, or we backpacking around Chile, it was like they were treating. I had long blonde hair at the time. I, my hair gets quite uh, bleach blonde from mm. surfing, and uh, I had long blonde hair. I had a blonde girlfriend, and we got treated like rock stars. Yeah, it's like strange. every town we went to, people would run up like, oh. Can we take a photo with you? Yeah. Like, hey, do you want to come and do it? Like, you like literally walking down the street. Exactly that. People are inviting you in for tea. They just want to sit down, engage, practice their English with you. Yes. Yeah. You know, like India can be a bit full on because they just want to touch you or be around you or grab yeah. you or like, you know. But it's just like that culture of like sitting down and not to take anything away from Europe because it's amazing to travel. They all, everything has, they all have their stuff. But I love for me, that's what gets, gets me so excited is that raw, mm. what, it's, what's real. Yes. So it's like uh, it's going into that that real life as something completely different, and and opening up the window and looking in to something completely different, yeah, alien it's like, to ourselves. Yeah. So I, it's. I think that's what's the last two years of COVID. I've really missed the whole idea of walking out of an airport in a foreign country and not knowing what the hell I do next. Yeah. Where you suddenly exist as a human. And you go, I okay, is it this taxi? Is it this doorway? Which bus do I need to get? And you're just totally overwhelmed by the heat, humidity, the smells. Everything's alien. And then you've got to survive as a human on your own two feet and go, I've just got to get through mm. this. Whereas now, I love Australia again, but I could walk out of the airport in Perth, out of the Virgin and go, okay, yellow cab, here I am, walk in the cab, off I go. Yeah. So or easy. just on your phone, Airbnb. My first uh, around the world back pack and trip, we had a rule. You weren't ever allowed to book anything ahead mm. so you'd fly into a country i still remember flying into argentina yeah and um getting there and we're so tired and um because we've flown from spain and straight up we're just like all right where do we go and you just see backpackers at the airport you see some backpackers you walk up we're like all right hey guys where to stay and they're like oh the, the guidebook says this place but <laughs> hey we found this other little place that's just down the road it's a cute little hostel there's a guy there they're really cool good vibe stay there 
Local and then knowledge. I remember we went and stayed at that place, and then we met this guy, Wim, this Belgium guy. And we ended up backpacking with him all the way to uh, Chile. We went and spent time in Mendoza, re-met up with him in Chile, and then he met. Um, we went to the south of Chile. He stayed in San Diego, met a girl who had an apartment. Then we went and stayed in this apartment in San, in San Diego. Like, and then we had a straight day. We had parties. And then we all busted up to the north of Chile together. It's just, you know, just the... I love the way that the, that's the opportunities knocking and the doors opening through putting yourself out there in the first place and not following that well-trodden path. Mm. And if you do that, the well-trodden path is very safe and secure and easy, but it doesn't open up an opportunity. Adventure only happens when you step outside of the known. Yeah. And if we're always doing the known, there's no adventure in there. Yeah. And it's only when you step out, you have to push yourself more and you break down your own internal barriers, but you also meet new opportunities arise from embracing that adventure side of yeah. things. That's what's really important. I think that's, and that's what, now that we've got the Travel Company Best Life Adventures, our, our ethos is that we will never do anything that other tour companies do. We might go and do the same journey but the diversions that we take off that journey are so unique and different that we hope no one else can offer exactly yeah. the same as we're so, doing. So you've mentioned it a couple of times. What actually is Best Life Adventures? Um, so, it's my selfish desire to travel continuing in so, a way. So <laughs> it came from after all this this traveling. What, like where did? How did you create a job out of this? Um, so we had maybe after I'd done Africa, I came back with no clue whatsoever of what I wanted to do next. Having then driven with Sophie, my wife, from Singapore to London, our goal on that journey was to try and work out how we could maybe start up a business when we came back. We didn't know what it looked like, whether it was going to be, you know, full-time travel bloggers, because I, I bloody hate it now. Yeah. I do a travel blogging influence. It's become so shallow in a way of just mm. getting personal profile. It, it never was back in 2007. It was about storytelling yeah. and honest storytelling. Um, so our journey from Singapore to London was all about what could we do when we get back as our own business? And we realized that so many places we were going to along this journey, like, you know, the, the wettest place in the world between... Um, uh, Bangladesh and India is a place called Cherrapunji. There's some amazing natural bridges there to go up the world's highest road in the north of India into uh, Manali and Leh at yeah. you know, 5,000 meters. All these places, we're pretty, we've traveled a lot. If we go well, other people who haven't traveled much are going to go double well, triple well. Fuck, it's amazing. Yeah. So if we could package up experiences that are physical and challenging, so using human power usually, whether it's outrigging or hauling sleds through the snow or riding bikes, gravel bikes up the highest road, if we can package together physical adventure in majestic, rarely visited places, they're going to sell. They have to sell. So there's a business model there. And every time I come back from a trip, someone would say, oh, I wish I could go and do that. So all of a sudden I'm thinking, there's 10 wishes there. They've all wished about the same thing. There's a product. Let's make this a business. So Best Life Adventures is about expeditions into the extraordinary. How we take people, low numbers of people, to extraordinary places to go and physically, mentally, and culturally challenge themselves. Well, okay, okay. What's what's an example? Like, what's an adventure you do? Um, so we have our sort of the upper um, echelon of our tough stuff we call the extreme dream series so it's stuff stuff that I've always wanted to go and do but I've never found people stupid enough or silly enough to go and do it so if I want to go and do it and I can find 12 people to go and do it good business model because it makes good money but I get to go and do these dreams as well these extreme dreams of mine so we go and do one in the north of Norway up in Tromsø um, it's called the Tri-Nation Arctic Challenge middle of the Norwegian winter so the first week of January three hours of twilight per day pitch black northern lights minus 10 minus 20 thick snow and we go and haul sleds to the culminant to the to the confluence of Sweden Finland and Norway over three days and then we take dog sleds over mountain ranges most dog sled what? trips 
Most dog sled trips for tourists are like five kilometers for your first trip. We go and do a full marathon for your first one. So 42 kilometers over a mountain range on ungroomed trails. So it's really tough. But at the end of it, everybody gets on those dogs. And usually we're taking Southern Hemisphere, so Kiwis and Aussies on these trips. Never dog sledded before. They get off their white knuckles, eyes as wide as saucers going, that's the best thing I've ever done in my life. You are kidding me. So that's fun. I was I literally watched that movie the other night of those uh, explorers crossing Greenland with the two dog sleds. I don't know if you know they had to. Anyway, long story short, they get their boat gets frozen in, gets broken up. They get stuck there for three years. They survive, but they sledded across Greenland with the dogs on dog sleds, and I was like watching it going. Oh my it's an, God. It's an, it's an amazing is... experience. It, everyone thinks you're just hanging onto the back of a sled and the dogs are pulling you. It's a lot of hard work riding dog sleds because every time there's a slight incline, you've got to jump off whilst never letting go of the sled because if you let go, they're gone and they just keep going until they stop and run out of energy, which is probably three days later. So you have you jump off, you usually bury yourself up to your knees or your waist in deep snow and then you've got to jump and jump and jump till they get enough momentum to pull you up the slope. So dog sledding, incredibly active as an experience but my god it's one of the best things you'll ever do well okay okay so for you owning this company to to organize that trip so you're then a logistics man so you've got a so i'm guessing you're like hiring local guides you're just working out all the logistics Mm. around having 12 people do that does it ever go wrong uh, yeah, I mean, it's like every trip. There's always things that go wrong, but that's where adventure starts to happen. If yeah. it's if it's like, and I talk about this with, so we've just done a trip in September of last year to the Torres Strait. So within Queensland waters, we basically as a company, as soon as COVID happened, we suddenly had to close down everything from our international trips to what the hell can we do in Australia? And Australians are very adventurous. They will, the grey nomads will drive to the middle of the outback in their own vehicles. So adventure is very hard to find for Australians that we as a company can package up and sell back to an Australian. Almost impossible. So I had to look back to my best job in the world days and go, okay, what really made me go well during those times? It wasn't any of the island resorts in the Barrier Reef. It was a trip up to the First Nation people of the Torres Strait Islands. I got two weeks up there and the people and the experience of that deep cultural um, proudness, the laughs they had from their stomach, the environment, the big crocodiles, the big sharks, the big Barrier Reef. Up there, I thought no one really goes there. So I thought, how do we harp back to some of the historical journeys that those seafaring people would have taken, which was all in outrigger canoes. So I found the outrigger club on club on Thursday Island and I contacted them and said, how about we go and do a stupid expedition for 10 people? You bring two of your steerers as the people that will look after the boat and take us on the journey. And we paddle around, say, seven or 10 of the Torres Strait Islands. So that was what we could deliver for Queenslanders within Queensland when COVID didn't allow us to go anywhere else. So this was Extreme Dreams Torres Strait. And do so you, it was born. Do you have a warning for your clientele? Because this is, um, it's like climbing Everest. Yeah, it's, it's going to cost a lot. You're going to pay the money, but you're still, you're the person that has to do it. Do yeah. people know this? Do they, do they know? Or do sometimes people rock up thinking, "Oh, okay, I'm just going to go paddle." Like, oh, hang on a sec, I've actually got a paddle. Oh, here. there's, a, there's, um, we we definitely forewarn a lot of people that are coming this trip fresh. The good thing is, most of our clients, sixty to seventy percent of people, are return customers. They know what mm. they've been in for, and they'll come back and do something else, and they look for the next thing. So we've got a really good core of probably five hundred people. Out of those, we're usually filling ten to sixteen places at a yeah. time. So we use we run this model called Oversubscribed. It's an amazing marketing book. It's all about making your product so desirable that if you've got ten places, you're you could easily sell twenty, but you push them forwards the next year and the next year and the next year. So the demand is always there. Torres Strait, we all always marketed as this is a this is um an un it's a planned but unpredictable expedition in 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 um hard sea country 
because up there it's big tides it's big waves it's big winds it's a rough part of the world really when it comes to the water so taking on outrigger canoes around an island that's never been circumnavigated by outrigger canoes before to go and do it for the first time we knew things could go wrong but we had a of course support boat alongside in wow. case things do and um, we use the traditional people to be there with us so that they'd meet us at the start of the day and they brief us and they take us to their spiritual places and it was really as deep a spiritual experience as it was a physical one um and god it was seven days of very hard paddling one day of extremely hard paddling so basically we planned it with the currents and the winds so we always had them to yeah. our back but you know what it's like with the tides works for six hours goes slack works the other way for six hours so if you've got the weather being unpredictable all of a sudden it's blowing on the nose and you're powering through big waves without any phone signal without a support boat because they've gone ahead to set up camp gets really scary and challenging but that's where again adventure starts to happen and you oh feel alive. oh my god because for me expedition mm. it's just everything around even the word expedition it's like it's like yeah i can do a little trip i love love it i just love raw but the expedition mm-hmm. where you've got to seriously plan you've got to get deep into it yeah you've got to make it work and happen it's brilliant because the thing is it's like you're creating that model where someone just can just jump on it's like oh this expedition is happening and well, i've got to I be part just, of it i but can people, be part of it but people know also need to they do realize and um, once they're on board with it or if they've done them before you are part of a team on that one because because yeah. again pulling a team of 12 people through the pitch black of the arctic and it's 50k winds and it's horizontal snow you can't just leave so and so back you've always got to look back at that red light at the back of the crew when you see 10 head head torches and one guy in front and someone at the back that person at the back if they're going as slow you're as fast as that slow person so again coming together as a team, building a rescue shelter, taking the weight off that person and split it amongst the others. You need to get 12 people into camp at the end of every day. So you have got to move as a unit. And if you're individuals within that, that doesn't work. So very much you come to an expedition to be part of a team. Um, And there's different players, there's strengths and weaknesses, and there's always local guides who know so much more than we do and are so much stronger. And for them, it's probably not nearly as challenging. But when we take, you know, people up to the north of Norway in the middle of winter from a 35 degree Queensland January day, it's literally polar opposites. It's 50 degrees temperature and diff- yeah. in, 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 in the heat, but also the night time is for 22 hours of the day as opposed to 12 hours here. So what's the common factor that you see in clients that happen to them? Um, our clientele quite often are GMs or CEOs or entrepreneurs or startups, people that are that love to take a risk in their day-to-day lives through their business world and wouldn't admit to doing it in their adventure world, but that's what they come to us to do. So they want to basically rock out of work at five o'clock on a Friday, having put in four months worth of training, and then we will get them to the start point of the trip. We'll execute the trip over seven to 21 days. So you'll tell everyone they need to train. Oh yeah, absolutely. They've got to yeah, train. yeah, there's a, there's a just, whole program. Just, this. So this is just like Everest. It's like you can't, or even like, um, I was looking up, um, oh, what's that guy who did the 14 Peaks? Nims. Nims. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was looking up his... Uh, guiding stuff for Annapura and he's saying like he's got you got to go to the UK you do all this training with him it's like a strict training regime that you have to do to even attempt it yeah and again really good business model because you've got a customer not just for one trip but for the lead up too as well so good business model from a start but also from an insurance liability perspective if so and so gets on to day three and they have a major injury and you can't get them out why did you not prep them for that trip in advance? That's what the insurance company will ask us as a liability thing. And that's the biggest expense for us in the course of a year is how we insure these trips. And if you put in the groundwork with your risk assessments and your people preparation in the lead up to the trip, the risk factor is mitigated Mm. when you start the trip. 
Yeah. And that, and that goes for the Arctic trip we had two years ago when we last ran it. We had a 15-year-old rugby player, but really good, strong guy. And we had two 55-year-old ladies, one who'd gone through to, uh, stage three cancer two years before, but wanted to get herself fit. And another lady who shed 20 kilos. Her father, her husband had passed away from MND. We'd taken them on a trip to every space camp. And then she said, I want to come and do the next thing. And she's shed kilos to prep herself to come and do this because she's now... She's got the appetite of adventure. She's building that passion. Yeah. And she's now booked up. She's coming in July to Uganda to come and do the mountain Mount Stanley in the Ruwenzori's. So once we've got the people there, they get they feed on that passion and the appetite and the adrenaline that the adventures deliver for yeah. them. Right at the end of the trip, yeah, what's the like what's normally the energy or the growth or the, the general, you know, like when you watch the movie alone, oh, not, the, not the movie, the TV show alone, yeah. they go into the wilderness, yeah. just get put by themselves. They all have these like spiritual awakenings mm. because they've just like gone raw and wild and stripped themselves of everything. Like, are you watching being a guide, you know, um, having clientele, you know, go push themselves so much. Are you watching like, you know, changes, growth, you know, happening? There's, um, there's a lot of, um, belief that people change that changes in people there's two there's twofold i suppose from a business perspective from 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 best life adventures perspective we always need to have the next expedition's booking page set up pre-adventure so that when they're in that that final 24 hours and they're all wallowing in that that wonder of oh my god we've done it they can press book on the next trip so we've got them straight away. That's a really key thing from a business perspective. Yeah. From a personal growth perspective, the people that come on the trips, you can see them feed off themselves and you can see their strength and confidence building. I've been taking, I've taken myself to an alien environment. I've got through the worst of it. I can reflect on the highs and the lows and the lows are always the biggest growth points because when you get down to your, your, your bitter end and you're out of energy and you don't think you can push anymore, you've still got 25% left. You can still get through that. And that was the Torres Strait, the final day on the Torres Strait, powering into a current that was going at five knots and you're powering along at four and a half knots. And you can see the headland and you think you're going to get there in 20 minutes and it's three hours later, you're still paddling. That belief to get through those moments, to finish the final day on our expeditions with the toughest physical part is the best reward for the clients because they sit back and go, wow, did I did it. I really did. You can see them grow in stature the moment they get through that they wilt obviously mm. straight away afterwards but at dinner that night they get a bed early but god they're rewarded and as you know this just domino effects throughout your life mm. because yeah. it's like you've been able to pull off something incredible you've you've gone to that pain threshold you've pushed yourself through before so then when things come up in your everyday day life it's like yeah i've got this I, th- I thought originally that these trips might have been about braggability i thought for people to be able to you know show themselves on social media to their friends or whatever else and show look what i'm doing i thought that was going to be a catalyst for people to come and join the trips but very much during the trip people are so involved in the moment that they're often asking us oh did we get any photos of that did we actually mm. it's all about the growth personal journey they take and if they take that momentum of belief back into their personal lives and their business lives that you know they've cleared their head they've reset they've disconnected from technology because that's so important on these trips as well to then go back having you know heads and shoulders above the person they were when they left that's the biggest win for us this is actually the um and i've I've had several conversations in the last couple of weeks about this because this is actually my problem and the whole reason why i do what i do and these adventures is to strip myself and be really connected to nature be connected with myself and just be out there doing it and then i come back and i get the you should have done a youtube channel why didn't you do this and you film this and it's like blah blah and i was like oh. and then i get in like kind of in trouble or pep talks all the time that like you know i should have been doing this i need to be capitalizing you know i need it's, to it's so, I, I, but if you if you're constantly yeah. looking through the lens 
you're not doing it with your own eyes yeah. and you're not really immersed in that moment i think so one of the key things we use for our corporate groups is obviously digital disconnection leads to better reconnection so yeah. being able to take people on a trip that's over three days long is vital to them coming back better because for the first two or three days there's always a habit the habit of looking on social media or checking mm. their phone it's only after three days that people start to sit down around the campfire and start to go oh so you're jill i remember what you do now and you start to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations the scary bit comes at the end of the trip so the last 24 hours of the trip we really have to almost reintroduce people back into normality because as soon as people get their phones out they come back in the signal and the first person's phone pings you see everybody else look at that person sort of go oh, yeah anxiety. that's reality that's normality coming back mm. and there's that anxiety to and you have to ease them back into that I had this, um, I did an ayahuasca ceremony not too long ago, and it was a, a similar thing. It's just um, that we, all the phones came back out in a basket, you know, the end of the, the stay, not the, the trip, but the yeah. stay. And um, the same, I was like, I'm not, I'm not touching it, I'm not going. And then first, as a lady, she turned her phone straight on, and just started going beep, 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 and it just started giving me anxiety. Yeah. I was just like, no, I, I took another few hours for me to turn mine on, and I put it on silent and put it out there, <laughs> and I just, I just, I couldn't look at it. You just got to drip feed back into it, because otherwise, it, I mean, we're all the same. I, my job during best job in the world was to purely market through social media at every opportunity, whether it was sounds on Twitter or photos on Instagram or stories on. There was there was so much to do. But I have now, the last post I put on my Instagram, on my personal Instagram, was probably a year ago. Mm. I've just really pulled away from all of that because, I, yes, I have to do it from a business perspective because we have to market our trips and we have to tell the story. And I love doing it from that perspective. But from personal, I've almost oversaturated my use of social media by being what was an early influencer. And now I see it today, I feel it's so soulless and shallow. Yeah. This podcasting storytelling real human interactions i sit and listen to podcasts all the time now whether i'm mowing the grass or whether i'm working on the property over the road i, I sit and listen to podcasts because i can ingest and stimulate and motivate from real stories and real people well that photo doesn't is not what excites me mm. what ex, you know even if it's like someone doing something incredible like standing on top of a mountain it, do, it does excite me but yeah. not to the extent of sitting down and hearing mm how someone got to that moment. Yeah, the rough How and the they earned the that mo moment, you yeah. know? Yeah. Oh my God, it's just incredible. What do you say to someone on your expedition, when you're guiding an expedition, what do you say to someone when they start giving up? Um, yeah, I, I, I hark back, I suppose, now to the, um, to the Arctic one because it's the one where conditions are against you the most because um, you've got the, the daylight hour depletion, which really mentally affects people. I think as soon as the, the daylight disappears on a day, we expect it's the end of our working day. And in the Arctic, that's usually one thirty-two in the afternoon. So you've still got four or five hours worth of hauling to go. Um, we have one of the young guys who, who all of his water bottles froze up. His camelback froze up. He'd got no means of getting water. I could see him behind the group getting really pissed off. He was starting to... We use his ski pole or his um, sled pole to bash through the ice on the top of his thing. I can see he was just a breaking point. Um, with people like that, it again, it's about so, sort of taking away some of the load factor. So what, what was happening, it wasn't about the ice on the top of that. It was the fact he'd run out of energy to pull his sled. So being able to break up that sled with that team and using the team to change that profile of exhaustion to feeling fit enough. Mm. I think using those people, it's really important, that team dynamic to be able to lead from the front and not necessarily being at the front of the group, but to be able to lead from the back and watch where people are suffering and help them with those suffering moments. And some of the girls were really struggling because the harnesses were tight and chafing on them and they'd never pulled before a, a pulk or a sled. Um, so being able to just sit down and reposition. The problem is with the Arctic, you sit down and reposition and do anything for too long, you get bloody cold bloody quickly yeah so you've got to act quickly um but i think mm. just being able to utilize those team strengths and benefits 
to, to help the weaker people out or the people that are struggling, I should say. How do you go, because I've had this before, like, you know, where, you know, someone's hit their fear barrier not being able to um, move or react to how you need to. And they start putting everyone else in danger mm. because they're not taking that step. Yeah. And I've I've nearly lost patience with this before where you're trying to like, you know, understand that person's trauma and fear and being like, hey, I really need you to just, just you know. Get your shit together. Yeah, <laughs> grab on this and grab on this because right now tide's coming up or this is happening and we need to move. And... So you need to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, They're like, I, oh, I can't. You're I, like, I, think I need you to. <laughs> prep, again, preparation, team, team here in Dynamic and preparation is so important on this. So in 2011, after I'd done Best Job in the World, I then did a kayaking trip from the southern end of the Great Barrier Reef all the way up to Cooktown. So it was 1,600 kilometers. And the first stage was to go from the town of 1770 out to Lady Elliot Island. It was 90 kilometers of open ocean. And then we had a support boat and I had five team members on there. On the first night that the boat was on the mooring at Lady Elliot Island. We'd gone ashore. We got a knock on the door at five in the morning saying, Ben, Ben, the boat's on the reef, the boat's on the reef. And a 40-foot catamaran, our support boat, had broken the shackle down on the ocean floor and the shackle had sheared and the boat was literally rocking on the barrier reef and it was rocking on the rudders and the propellers had fallen off. Moments like that, if you've put that preparation in and you've got the right team around you, somehow... Synergy just happens and things just move into place. And this was, I knew we had a captain. I knew we had a good first mate. I knew that I had some marine knowledge, but enough to work out how I could help in that situation. We had two dive boats come in and start to tow it off. And within two or three hours, we'd managed to free the boat off the reef, refloat it. Spent two weeks on the slipway in Bundaberg getting repaired. And that was a shit start to an expedition. Very different from, we were, we were retracing the route of Captain Cook. And Captain oh, Cook really? obviously came aground on Endeavour Reef outside of Cooktown. But we sort of flipped the expedition 100%, 180 degrees. And we had the crash at the start of the trip. And we managed to get all the way up to Cooktown with a boat that had been repaired, put new rudders on, new keels for two weeks on the slipway, and we took it home. But those moments where the shit is literally hitting the fan, if you've put in the right preparation with that team, everyone knows their places. It's almost like an unwritten risk assessment is being enacted. Yeah. And those moments where I've still got scars on the legs now, from the barrier reef scratching up my shins as I was jumping off, pulling on ropes. And they're the moments where you realise that if you've got the right people around you, maybe if one of those people is missing, shit goes down. But if you've got the right people there at the time, you can pull most things through to the end of it. And there might be bits hanging off, like propellers or legs, <laughs> but you can get them to the end. <laughs> so a lot of these expeditions have like meaning behind them. Like that, that was like Captain Cook's trick. That was like, is that how you, you try and... <sighs> Um, like, are you constantly looking for ideas? It's just like, oh, that'd be cool to do, retrace those steps like yeah, that, just I to mean, give more meaning. The, the more that the, now that I've lived longer in um, Australia, obviously, I realise the um, the insignificance of Captain Cook and the empire coming across here, and how much impact that's had on the First Nation people, and how our Invasion Day now is not really something to be celebrated. However, when I first got here, I was sort of proud of the seamanship and the exploration that James Cook did to explore the planet. The fact that he might have, you know, started a slave trade and, and, and smashed First Nation people's history and changed their lives forever. That's a bad, bad thing, obviously. But at the time, I was inspired by just that belief that I'm going to go and do something for the first time. And I think that's the ethos I want to I take into our expeditions, that if we can go and do something for the first time, it's so much better to innovate than replicate. And I love that with the expeditions, that if we see something and go, OK, well, the world's highest road, I've seen people driving it, I've seen people doing it on motorbikes, how about we go and cycle it? But instead of going just to that pass, we go to the three highest passes in the area. So 
the world's highest road in the north of India is magic because it goes over three enormous Himalayan ranges. They climb from three and a half thousand meters to five and a half thousand or five thousand and eighty five meters. And that was the world's highest road for like 15 years. And it's only open for three months of the year because it's covered in up to 30 metres of snow throughout the rest of the year. So it opens for three months of the year. And we dragged the old Land Rover up there. And then the Bolivians decided, oh, we're going to make a road that's 5,100 metres above sea level <laughs> just to beat the world record. Yeah. So this year, the Indians have opened a new road that goes to 5,900 metres above sea level. So now we're re-engineering our best life adventure going, well, we're not going to go back to the old road. Why don't we, in September of 2023, take a group of people on push bikes or gravel bikes and mountain bikes and re and ride the new world's highest road? So there's always a chance to go and innovate and, du- and rather than duplicate and find these adventures that other people don't go and do. And that's what the theory for all of my trips from, you know, the kayak along the barrier reef to running the tallest mountain in each state in Australia in eight days to running the nine walks of New Zealand back to back in nine days. There's always something new and stupid and crazy to go and do. You just got to, for me, find other people to go and do it with. And so do you, because you're constantly doing this, you've got to constantly keep yourself fit because yeah. you don't know what's around the corner. You're like, yeah. oh, am I going to have to train for this? And there's so many, the good thing is we do loads of disciplines. So no one who comes on our trip needs to have any prior experience. So if you, yes, if you're coming on a trek through a base camp, that's a fairly standard thing to go and do. You've got to be physically fit. But if your engine is good, you can usually have the mentality to apply any part of your body. So we'd never been on outrigger canoes. We'd done half an hour practice in Crumbin Creek before we went and took on 10 islands in the Torres Strait in outrigger canoes. It was literally everybody's first training run was down there on the creek. After half an hour, we flew to the Torres Strait, you know, three weeks later, and we got on the boats and that was our first ever trip. No one's ever pulled sleds when they go to the Arctic, but they put snowshoes on in the car park and they go, fuck it, we just got to do it. And they learn on the job. And it's a really cool thing. It's not too dangerous that it would be a, you know, a liability, but it's enough that people can just say, if I've got the engine and I'm generally fit enough, I can go and do anything I want to do. I'm going to push it. So, okay, so what are the, what are the expeditions that you have coming up? Ah, so when I did the drive around Africa, I talked about the mountain that I missed. Um, on the border of Uganda and uh, the Congo, there is a mountain range called the Ruwenzori Mountains or the Mountains of the Moon. And Mount Stanley is the third highest mountain in Africa. It's 5,109 metres above sea level. It's got a glacier at the top of it. So it's all about ice axes and crampons, even though it's almost on the equator. Day one is 35 degrees in the jungle. Day eight is probably minus five degrees on the top of a glacier with snow falling, climbing with ice axes. So that was the mountain that I said I haven't yet got to. So again, Ben wants to do something. Let's go and build an expedition for Best Life Adventures. So the expedition is Wildest Africa and Mountains of the Moon. So we go and do 10 days to climb Mount Stanley. And then we go with the clients. It's going to be brilliant. So we then go down to one of my other favorite parts of Africa is the wildlife. And to go and do the wildebeest migration in the Serengeti, but not in the Land Cruisers, the Land Rovers, because as soon as there's a kill, there's 20 Land Rovers around it. And it's a really unpersonal experience, impersonal experience. But we're going to do it as a walking safari. So basically two guides, rifles, taking all of our own gear with us. So we'll walk through Big Five Country, staying hopefully by the edge of the Babeti River where the wildebeest will climb through Croc Country and camp on the edges of there. So that's the plan. It's That's mm. our first one, Uganda in July. And then the doorway to international travel is sort of opening up again. So we'll go back in um, August to the World's Highest Road. We're going to go and do a cycling trip there. September, we'll head back to the Torres Strait to go and do our Extreme Dreams Challenge and Outriggers. November, October, back to Nepal to go and do some of the Himalayas up there and Everest Base Camp trips. And then in January, we head back to probably my favourite trip of the year is the Norway trip to the north of the Arctic Circle and to go and do the trip there in the snow. So there's a bit lined up. And then every year we try and release a new Extreme Dreams Challenge. So 2023, watch this space. Wow. 
<laughs> wow. Okay, so if someone has a crazy idea, you know, obviously these are all crazy ideas that, that mm. you're, you're planning for and there are a lot of logistics, you know, and, and how you said you, you listened to that last podcast or two podcasts ago with um oh, with Tom. Tom. Yeah, yeah Tom. with Tommy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. He's about to leave too. Yeah. I'll, I'll following his, as soon as you saw it, I was on Instagram and on his webpage following his yeah. movements. So. He's literally about to leave. Anyway, so Tommy's, um, you know, he's planned an expedition. He's like going for it. He had an idea. Okay, I want to paddle across you know, from Peru to Australia. Like, are you kidding me? He's going for it, right? People, like one time I remember I was like, oh, I want to take a jet ski from Australia to New Zealand. You know, that just didn't last because it's too much. And I also am not into it anymore. Mm. But this is when I was like 18, you know, I had a jet ski and I just remember thinking like, oh, I wonder if I can just go. go? Just just go, you know. It's like, okay, so when when people have these ideas or they want to do an expedition, it's like right now I'm planning to do Aconcagua and then ride a motorbike down to Patagonia. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, with a mate, it's like for you, what advice would you give to someone who has like a crazy idea or a stupid idea and just wants to go for it? It's very easy to mull over a a point in your head and think about it to the nth degree. Um, There's two trains of thought, and I think I'm guilty of both. One is that you just go and do something. You up sticks and you just go and do it. And the other one is that you plan it to the nth degree so that you don't fail. And I think failure is a good point of learning. Because if you have things that go wrong, you become a better person and you learn not to do it again or you you know change your tack mm. and you do it slightly differently. Um, for me, the biggest thing about committing to an adventure, there was two things we talked about earlier. One is talking talk to your friends about it and putting it out there and becoming accountable. Because as soon as you've got that idea and you talk about it, they'll either poo-poo it and you'll, get, you'll either become stronger in your head and say, I definitely want to do it now. Yeah. Um, or they'll support you and take you on the journey as well and they'll come with you on that sort of virtual journey to get to the start point. The most important thing for me then is also publishing a date and saying when it's going to happen because then you've got a finite number to work to and it might adjust and it might move by you know only two or three days or a week or something because of logistics but if you've got a date and you've put it out there to your friends or your family you then become accountable and it's up to you to deliver that so going out there and confidently saying it's going to happen is the best thing ever i said i'm going to drive around africa and i'm going to get home and people said you're bloody stupid are you going to carry a gun could you ever shoot anybody and as soon as i put it out there you get the naysayers but you also feed off that and use that negativity and the other people's positivity to go, well, I'm bloody going to do it then, aren't I? Yeah. It's fun. I've gone to the point now where people just don't question it. <laughs> well, you've done enough then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, but it's just like, oh, what are you doing next? I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this. Well, it's like Tom. The amount of naysayers poor Tom must have had just going, you're that young. You've mm. got a big ocean to do. You're building your own boat. Are you stupid? And he probably feeds off that going, and it's it's flamboyant youth that takes you that place mm. as well because it's like when you you know you go on a half pipe on a skateboard when you're 16 years old or you go on when you're 26 years old the 16 year old has no fear and all balls and just goes for it and yeah. deals with the consequences yeah. 26 year olds questions it so much they'll eventually go for it and probably pull it off but they've gone through a whole hurt mental journey just to get the same result yeah so tom's just yeah sometimes naive is kind of bliss mm. with that too it's like even for me it's like i want to jump in one of my good mates is like that he's an overthinker mm. and he comes up and puts in your head every Negative. scenario okay. yeah you know what i mean and i can't have him around when i'm like doing stuff because i'll just go for it yeah you know There's what a, i mean so the difference for us i suppose for me has come when it becomes a commercial operation mm. all of a sudden i'm free carefree ben in the land rover driving around africa and i'm the only one that's going to be have problems or accountable or the travel insurance won't cover me, but then you're taking other people and you become responsible for their livelihoods and their well-being. Yeah. You have to make sure that risk assessment is watertight. 
even though I don't do most mm. of them half the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's all, I, I just find just with my mate, it's just his level of fear. It's just different yeah. to mine. Yeah. So it's like, I still got a calculated risk, risk there. So, okay, so for Ag and Cagua, it's like, I'm actually going to train for that like I'm doing an 8,000. Yeah. Like we're going to go do glacier training. We're going to do a whole heap of training that I don't actually need to do, but just so I have that upskill for other mountains. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's like, we're going to, yeah, we're going to try just, yeah, over upskill, I suppose you could say. I think as well, again, there's a big cliche about surrounding yourself by people you're inspired by, like-minded people. But don't forget the ones that were the naysayers. They're just there for a different space in your life. We've all got these different um, mm. hats that we wear with different people. And I'd go to Owen for the silly stuff still, even though we haven't done much together because he didn't come. I'd still go to Owen to do that planning space. So I'd go to, say, for my wife to go and do some of the business planning space. So, But I wouldn't take that that topic of the dangerous adventure stuff necessarily to mum and dad. Yeah. I'd tell them what's going on eventually but i wouldn't probably tell them about nigeria and the sticker boys and ethiopia and all those bits because they're the bits that i don't need to know about and they're the bits where they might pull you down it's funny i had a conversation about this yesterday and then again a couple of days ago and it was about pretty much naysayers or people much stuck in their own fear or their own trauma and putting that on you mm. and the conversation was around like being more sensitive to and holding space for those traumas instead of ta- and, I, and my my kind of argument let's yeah my kind of argument or point about it was like it's just not my story yeah. it's like yeah i can have love and respect for it but that fear or that trauma that they have is not my story <laughs> so it's like my story is is me you're forging yourself you know what i mean yeah. and what i want in my life and what i need to do is to move forward and go in this direction i can't keep stopping to feed someone else's story that isn't mine I think, definitely think we've all got different ways that we process and deal with things. And some people are very emotional up front and they'll deal with it face-to-face in conversation with people. And I think a lot of people that I now spend good times with are endurance-based um I say I call them athletes because anybody that comes on our trip becomes an athlete just by going through it. But an endurance-based yeah. athlete, they always say it's running to something or away from something. And that for maybe me then is a way of dealing with past grief. Or And I haven't had much. I've been very, very lucky. But the endurance thing is just going, I'm either running to something, which is the end line, or away from something that I've got in my past. And I just think endurance very much does that. To get yourself in a headspace, to go on these tough physical adventures, you've got to have gone through some tough times physically or mentally that you're either propelling yourself away from or pulling yourself back to it's an interesting wow. space yeah i've always thought yeah it's funny because i've questioned that because people have said that to me before they're like oh aaron you travel so, so much what are you running away from mm. and i've had to think about this and i'm like am i, am I? no i don't and i'm I like don't i don't think, think i am it's just like that's what i like doing you're I'm, running two opportunities yeah that's for me what it is it, the opportunities mm. it throws up are better than the things you lose i mean i i thoroughly miss my friends and family in the uk mm. i really do but i haven't lived there for a long long time but that's one of the things i wish i could get back to more but by going to new places rather than back to that i am forging more opportunities for my mentality and my headspace and hopefully my son to think and and do things in a similar way my little boy atlas you know he's traveled a good bit with us and i want him to learn about the world not necessarily through the four walls of a classroom but by interactions with other people i mean the opportunity we talked about with wild earth you know there's an amazing festival that's supporting up in the northern territory and for me to take my little boy as a four and a half year old up to deeply indigenous lands up there i can't think of anything better for him than going up and being part of that ceremony than being there and engaged with First Nation. It's going to be amazing. So I'm hoping we can get out to that sort of thing. Well, and what do you think, you know, as a father, 
you know, you want to introduce your boy to like traveling and expanding his mind and like, why, why do you think that's so important? Because it's, I'm, I'm worried about our youth right now with how much restrictions have been on the, on the world and that those mm. dreams would have died for a lot of yeah, our youth and they yeah. would have like got stagnant or locked themselves into something and not going to do it. But it's like, what's your, what do you feel is it, why it's important? I always reiterate, the cl- my, my best classroom was travel. My best, my best, the time I learned the most about myself and about the world was by being out there in it. Mm. Um, there was no guidebook there was no textbook that was going to give me that understanding of what it was like to actually go out there and build myself as a human and i'm not saying i'm a bloody good human i'm just saying i became better in myself by going out yeah. there and doing that sort of stuff so to take him on those adventures and not necessarily throw him in the deep end and become fully independent but to go there and understand it and understand different ways of doing things and humidities and religions and foods and colors and smells and music and all the things that make a community mm. if you can expose them to all those different things there'll be much broader thinking and i think in the last five ten years of the planet we need to build more bridges than walls yeah and that's what i wanted to be as a bridge builder yeah and you become well you become open-minded yeah because it's just you're seeing different things you're experiencing different things but people often like question they go yeah but i know myself and it's like well do you know what you're like when you're in a raft going down a waterfall how yeah. do you react in that situation like well no no it's and the, the thing is it's putting yourself in di- different situations to see what you like what you don't like mm. what your strengths are what you like that's learning yourself you know what it actually is that makes you tick what it actually is that makes you wake up in the morning what your passions are what your love loves are it's, you know getting away from the conditioning yeah. that you're living in it's, and that's what the biggest, one of the biggest learning things for me was realizing how conditioned I was by growing up here on the Gold Coast. Yeah. Everyone, no matter where you grow up, you have a certain conditioning. You know, a certain thing that gets told to you that this is how it is. And me breaking away from that and breaking away that from that conditioning and then listening to myself and going, whoa, what do I want? What, yeah. What yeah. makes, what, what are what, my passions? The question I find, okay, so ask me at 34 years old, when I just got back from Africa and I was just about to win the best job in the world, I had no idea where I was going to get it. I'd been asked for 34 years up to that stage, what do you want to be when you're older? And I find myself asking my four-year-old son, what do you want to be when you're older? I had no idea at 34 years old what I wanted to be. I just about know now what I want to be doing with our company. But it doesn't define what I want to do for the rest of my life. But that question is so embedded in our conversations with kids going through school. What is it you want to be when you're older? What are the li- what are exams you're going to line up over the next three or four years to get the grades to get yourself that position? It's good to have foresight. It's good to give them a foundation of knowledge. But I still didn't know 30 years after the age my boy is now what I even wanted to do. Yeah. Well, you're going to set yourself up for a lot more happiness if you go figure out who you are. Yeah before you pick something yeah i don't think there's an eternal career of 50 years and a carriage clock at the end of it anymore i think we try a million different hats on and we and if we continue to do that all the way to the bitter end you know we've had a better more fulfilling rewarding open Mm. life yeah oh my god how deep all right well we've been talking for an hour and 50 (laughs) it's been amazing inspiring conversation especially like me like i'm buzzing right now because i just want to expedition i just want to go on (laughs) an adventure good uh i i really want to take this moment right now to to well i was just thinking about it. as you're saying that before i was like thinking about like wild earth australia is like where we both have an affiliation with mm. but i was thinking about that expo that we went to and the people that are their ambassadors and there's no other company that i know like it and i know it sounds like i'm just like talking to my yeah, people yeah but like it's promo but it kind of like but i was like literally thinking about it. it's like what other like people do you know like me meeting you Ben, it's like, whoa, it's like someone else like me. It's like when I meet Jeff, I'm like, yeah. I see myself so much in him. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then sitting up there and talk, like listening to Sam Weir talk the other day about the stuff he does, you know, he rode 
He rode a canoe. Oh, what was it? He like, rode the ocean boat across the Pacific, wasn't it? He did, I think. Yeah, he, he went from Australia to New Zealand. Yeah, he went to the Atlantic. Yeah, but then he's also he does it does you know he talks about it like it's nothing. And Sam is an engine, but he talks about you know his his hundred k races. Oh no, not the hundred k, not two fifty k, five hundred kilometer running races. These are big, big distances. And I've done one hundred and thirty, and I think that's bloody hard. But Sam can just knock these things out. And like I said. Going to a, an event like that where you've got people talking on stage, surrounding you with other like-minded people who are equally, if not more crazy than you, just feeds that appetite of adventure. And I came off the back of that trip and I'd seen the sort of social media chats that had gone on post that event. Um, and two or three people have suggested things they want to do. And Sam's direct message me about something he wants to do in the in the Glasshouse Mountains. Yeah, and yeah, all of yeah, a sudden, all it's just like poking more coals under the cauldron. They're bubbling away. All these thoughts yeah. are slowly steaming out of the cauldron. So it's going to be an interesting next 12 months. Well, that was the whole thing. It was like, it, it was that reiterating of like, surround yourself by people that, that inspire you. Mm. Straight up after, after that um, expo, I ran yeah, back. I was like, I need yeah, a train. Yeah, did, and I ran away. back across the city. You know? yeah, I just need to do something now. I've got to use this built up. And this is back to the ADHD thing. It's that yeah. pent up adrenaline energy and you're channeling it into something good. And if you're mm. doing it as a physical thing, we know the endorphins and the serotonin and all those good chemicals that are released into the brain when you either take ecstasy or exercise. I think exercise is probably easier these days. Yeah, I think yeah. it's better for you. Yeah. Well, you don't have those dopamine like... <laughs> the lows. Yeah, yeah. Post-expedition lows, but not, you know, Monday, Sunday blues. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I yeah it's yeah. incredible and and this is one I, actually I'll, I'll, re, I'll leave on this it's funny once you put it out there once you put the, get the wheels in motion it just starts happening mm. and, it, and it's just happened for me this week like, just like I, t- I was telling you earlier about you know I'm doing Ag and Cagua and then I want to ride down to Patagonia and then I was like oh I wonder if I should go back to Iceland yeah and then next thing is just boom boom Boom. And the doorway's open, so it's the, it's having the having the adrenaline and the motivation yourself to have a loose plan, but then having those conversations with those people that open the doors to change your tack slightly, but you're still sailing in the same direction, which is success, personal satisfaction, and getting to an end goal. And what you're meant to be doing. Yeah, it's just like it's like the universe just helps you out. It's just like oh, you're meant to be doing this. Aaron, can I say on behalf of the adventure community as well, well done for pulling this sort of stuff together because it's really good for me just to sort of feed on my own thoughts about where you come from and what you do. And building that community, you are out here galvanizing a community of people who will listen to these and inspire themselves to sort of take the leapfrog up to the next level. So thank you for coming to sit in my little boy's cubby house to have oh, this yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> We're in a cubby house in Crumbin Valley. It's the it's Young Explorers beautiful. Club. It's not just a cubby house. <laughs> I, I should actually, I'll, I'll do an intro at the start just to actually explain this cubby house because yeah, right. it's absolutely brilliant. There's, yeah. Oh, and on the front, we got, we got a full-size male African water buffalo skull that I picked up in Africa and I've had it with me for the last... 12, 15 years now. So Bacchus is out there as the thing you knock your head on when you came in. Yeah, right at the front of the... And yeah, you had that on the Land Rover driving around Africa. All the way. So it was on the middle of the roof rack right at the front. And you know those joke eyes that you get on Springs, the joke shops? Yep. I had two of those in each, one of those in each eye, obviously. And <laughs> I was driving through Africa and the locals would stare up at this water buffalo with these big springy eyes. But it was just, yeah, it was pretty stupid and cool at the time. Oh, my God. Do you feel... And you kind of feel safe in that. My my girlfriend said to me the other day, she said something about sleeping in the troop. And I was like, yeah, but people don't mess with people in troopies. No, definitely not. She's like, what? I was like, nah. Just, just an unwritten rule I'll see if that play, plays out on Morton Island at the weekend but anyway. yeah yeah we'll see alright Ben you're incredible you're amazing you're inspiring you're just so adventurous thanks for coming on thanks thanks man. for telling us about your life and uh, thanks Wild Earth for bringing us together yeah rock out and go to bestlifeadventures.com <laughs> so bestlifeadventures actually yeah. 
That's what we need. That's what we need yeah. to leave with. Actually, yeah, this, these ridiculous adventures, <laughs> these ridiculous adventures and expeditions. If you want to go on them, yeah, bestlifeadventures.com. Exactly right. Yeah, go on there. There's a Facebook page, obviously, Best Life Adventures, and then the Instagram channel. But that's how you can sort of see some of the adventure froth that we try and create. Um, and we do do limited spaces, so things book up quickly. But Adventure Travel Internationally is back as of July this year. See you, COVID. Get out the door. We don't need you anymore. We're going back onto planet Earth. Oh my God, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's happening. I looked up the other night, you know, countries that are completely open and there is so many. Yeah, it's it's good to see and there's less and less testing needed out there. I'm not saying pandemics have become endemics and they're disappearing, but fuck it, we're going for it. I know, that's the thing. Okay, please, stop holding us back. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, Benny, let's get out of here, man. Thanks, Apes. Cheers. So if you guys like this episode and would like to support keeping this podcast going and also get me up that mountain, please feel free to donate through the link in my bio on Diaries of the Wild Ones Instagram or the website diariesofthewildones.com and in the menu bar, hit the donate link. And please share this app on your social media stories or just tell your mum. A penal knife giveaway this week, guys, to whoever shares the podcast and tags Diaries of the Wild Ones. I'll choose a frother and send out a knife. Much love, guys. Enjoy. Jari apa, jari cinta, jari apa.